episode with Wendy Mays once where she used your real name just in passing. She mentioned you and I was like, I have to delete that. I have to cut that out. You with your real <laughs> name on there. This is breaking the the illusion. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, it's uh, the illusion is further broken because you're seeing me. I'm what I'm doing next today is going to the gym. So this is like the no makeup real name. <laughs> exactly. Going to the gym is not evil enough for me either. It's not what I prefer. I know. I know. It's really like, it, it. you know, all of the the real life stuff that happens behind the scenes to enable me to live this life where I get to, you know, um, buy black metal albums and spend my free time thinking about terrible things so <laughs> thank you so much for I'm doing this thank you so much like for recommending this somewhere book. like a dark chapel Ooh. yay no i'm glad you liked it i'm excited to I'm, I'm actually really excited for this recording because this was the kind of thing where as i started rereading it i'm like uh-oh have i done something terrible to like people who i like <laughs> <laughs> we'll talk about that it's good it, well there's so much to talk about why don't we get into it I'm probably going to even it. leave this preamble on the episode. Oh, we, we can amble. <laughs> it was the kind of sound that conjured images of decay and neglect. Most of the lower frets on the guitar he used were gunked with finger grease, dried blood, or so Max liked to imagine. Lead lines would rupture with feedback and chords sounded shambolic, notes repellent, pulling away from one another. He refused to accept that a thing in all its elements should have to behave otherwise, governed by an inner pool, oppressed by the gravity of its center. Welcome to the Pink Smoke Podcast. Your host, John Cribs and Chris Funderberg. This is the episode I look forward to all year. This is our annual October horror fiction uh, book episode. It's where we started five or so years ago. We do it every single year. And we always have a very special guest to join us and pick a book that's usually new to us that we all kind of get to explore Going to go into its dark depths together. So I always look forward to it. And today, our special guest is Tenebris Kate, who is an, a writer, an artist, and an empress of all things dark, fantastical, and forbidden. She is a co host of the literary podcast Bad Books for Bad People, which we both are gigantic fans of. And she creates limited run items for her micro publishing imprint, Heretical Sext. Tenebris Kate, welcome. Thank you for inviting me into your own empire. This is really cool. I think um, it was a very, very hard for me to resist coming into another person's house and talking about bad books. So this is a joy. Thank you. <laughs> and it is. I was looking at your your episode list recently, and it's it's interesting how much stuff you cover that's sort of in that we cover sort of similar stuff to you know sort of that that is i think sort of in our wheelhouse if not um exactly you know like we've talked about vc andrews on another podcast and we've talked about jim thompson and you know we talk about you know uh, you've never guys have never covered all the heads turn when the hunt when, when the hunt goes by but it would be perfect for you guys that kind of thing and you've also recommended a bunch of books that like i can't i can't remember what my life was like without al ron you know what I mean? Like, I can't remember Aww. what it was like before then. So, um, yeah, so we're just thrilled 
to have you on. And and I, I mentioned this to you once, like I once took a um, cross country trip from New York to Los Angeles. And like, all I did was listen to bad books for bad people on the drive. <laughs> so I have these memories that are like, oh, that time I drove across Kansas with Kate. Oh, no, wait, I barely know her. I know her a little bit. We didn't drive across Kansas. I listened to her show when I was in the middle of nowhere at midnight in Kansas. That's what happened. Listening to talk her about Anne Rice's Atlantis novel, you know? So. <laughs> I guess the one with the pleated jeans, the pleated and ironed <laughs> vampire jeans. This is my biggest memory of that. <laughs> That's um, definitely what Kansas is missing is bad books for bad people. Yes, <laughs> for sure. It to that state for sure. <laughs> it's well, it is. It is weird. It's it's one of the few podcasts that I feel like steeped in in some way, you know, and and maybe have some sort of a uh, uh, a parasocial relationship to where it's like, oh, listen, oh, this is. I think about this thing a lot. So again, thank you for doing doing this show and thank you for recommending corpse paint do you want to do you want to introduce the book a little bit for us yeah absolutely so you know we went back and forth on a couple of different ideas that i have because when again when presented to come into somebody's house and talk about bad books or horror <laughs> books i have no shortage of ideas so we kind of kicked around a few of like the classic you know heavy hitters like are we going to do a dennis wheatley are we going to do a sax romer like where are we going to party and I think we really wanted to do something different, you know, something that we hadn't already covered on bad books. And yeah. this was a book that had been one of my top picks when we do our like year end roundup, but we hadn't really dug into it on the show. So Corpse Paint is a more recent book. It's uh, published in 2018 and it is by an author called David Peake. And really the sort of back of the envelope pitch uh, of it is that there's this iconic but drug addicted black metal musician who's invited to record his comeback album on a compound of this mysterious band in, in Ukraine. And he is accompanied by a naive young drummer who's fighting his own personal demons. And these two Americans make their way into a world of apocalyptic extremism that winds up being way more than what they bargained for. I'll say. <laughs> <laughs> and this is just such a grotty book. I was like, it really stuck with me. So this is like the second or third time I've reread it. And I'm like, yeah, this thing, this thing hits you know well, this thing yeah. hits its notes it's funny i've always you know i'm i'm a filmmaker and a writer myself and i've occasionally had this thought that it would be great to make an artwork that's indefensible not deliberately provocative not trying to push people's button but just exist in a moral space that's completely indefensible like i always i always thought it would be interesting to make a sincere movie about the bank robbers who were like the white supremacist group that supposedly funded the Kansas City bombing, but sort of weren't brought to justice to like, what if you made a real movie about them? It's impossible to justify any of it. They're white supremacists raising money to blow up a government building. But I think that would be really interesting. This book has that quality to it. This book has that indefensible quality to it without being sort of juvenile provocation. Yeah, I think it would be real easy for it to go into edgelord land, because I think yeah. anytime you're talking about black metal, like you butt up against that potential, right? Because, yeah. you know, one of the things I am not going to do on this podcast is like define what black metal is. I think we should not do that <laughs> <laughs> unless you really want your mentions to blow up. Uh, 
But like, you know, it can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people, all of them extremely dark, all of them extremely like emotionally and politically fraught. So, you know, I think um, Peak does just an incredible job of digging into that here. Yeah. And I did want to say up front, you know, John is not a metal person at all. Um, I'm I'm a little bit of a metal person, but it is the most gatekeepery of all genres, I would say. I would say more than any genre, it is gatekeepery. So I wouldn't even, I'm like, you know, I can talk about this stuff, but you can't, I can't pass that like fop, top five Venom tracks go, you know, like I'll sort of, you know, those kind of things. And I was going to say that like uh, up front, there's two kinds of metal people, I think, which is that there's the metal people who really love pro wrestling right? And the metal people who got graduate degrees that will never be able to pay for themselves. Those are like the two kinds of metal people. And like the pro wrestling ones like got a me- got their first metal album in like seventh grade and it never occurred to them to buy any other kind of album but metal. And I think a lot of the graduate degree people were like former punks who realized like they could get the like nihilistic aggression they wanted from MDC but isn't necessarily there out of like Pig Destroyer and Maiden even, you know, that it's that it's expressing sentiments that you might um, expect to hear on punk albums, but with like a sort of intensity and musicianship that, you know, like Iron Maiden expresses a lot of the things that Crass does, only they actually know how to play their instruments and the songs are good. You know what I mean? So I think when I think about metal, there's still it's it tends to be two groups that are very like either very intelligent about what they're doing or very sort of brutishly defensive about it. Those are sort of the two categories. And I sort of, I can't get in the ring with either of them. You know what I mean? So I think up front, you know. Oh, your read is spot on. Like I realize this is a (laughs) podcast and not a visual medium, but you know, we're seeing each other right now. And I'm like enthusiastically head nodding because (laughs) like, you know, I've been in and out of this scene for the majority of my life, right? Because I'm one of those people who discovered metal when I was 12 years old. And it was like, oh, this is, this is the greatest thing ever. And it's because it's so, um, there's so many different kinds that like you at any point in your life, you can like dip back in and find something that's going to speak to you. You know, like if I'm feeling art school, I have like my arty stuff that I can go to. Or like if I'm feeling really, really pissed off, I have things that are really, really pissed off. If I'm feeling like a spooky little goblin, there are things that uh, appeal to me there. So, you know, at the highest level, you're absolutely right. And as somebody who's been doing this for literal decades, I still feel like I'm outside <laughs> a lot of it, you know, like part of that is being a woman. I think there's there's more space for women now than there ever have been. But, you know, I'm not going to lie and say that's always been an easy thing. Like you walk yeah. into a room and, you know, you've got an electric wizard shirt on. The, the good news <laughs> is I'm uniquely well positioned to have a conversation about everything that electric wizard has ever done. Yeah. And I will totally blow you up in terms of like my movie knowledge and my book knowledge. <laughs> so, you know, I feel very confident there like in that doom metal space, but you know. But it's a space that demands that too. Oh, and it's like, you know, yeah. the freight, like, you you know, like Man of War and Death to False Metal, that's been like a, a like calling, <laughs> clarion call from the beginning. And I was going to say, uh, part of why I brought this up is in relationship to the book, metal knowledge 
is occult knowledge in some fundamental way, occult in the sense of its of its root of hidden from sight, like hidden the ocular nerve, right? Occult means something hidden from sight. You know, metal is massively popular, but it does want to hide itself from view. It does want to close doors and happen behind closed doors in some very fundamental way. And I think that's interesting to think about as we talk about the book. Yeah, and a lot of it will come up, obviously, while we're kind of discussing the plot and everything. But it was interesting coming in as a complete, more or less novice to the specific kind of metal that this book is talking about, which is, you know, like Norwegian, Swedish, 90s, when it kind of got really popular, there, the black metal scene. Although there was an interview I read with David Peake where he offered a soundtrack to listen along with the book, which was Whoa. very helpful. And uh, of all those songs, there was one by Bathory that I really got into. So, <laughs> Well, Bathory is the best of them. Yeah, so. it seems like it. it. Yeah, they were, they seem to be kind of the forerunner, you know, and, and Kate was very helpful uh, recommending a few books and uh, documentaries to check out, which I did. So now I feel like this is exactly what I was hoping for. And I said, I really hope you don't mind coming on to this show taking my hand and leading me through, you know, <laughs> any of the gaps I'm missing, you know, and my knowledge that it would be helpful to kind of better understand this book. But before we get and get into that stuff, let's do our aperitif uh, uh, pairings real quick. It's just <laughs> because I, another thing I'm worried about is that bad books is so well structured. You and Jack do such a great job, of, you know, <laughs> just knowing when to, you know, when you get into the themes and when you get into everything else. And we are so undisciplined in our structure. I know. So make sure to stay on task. I know. This is uh, the most we've tried to prepare for an episode ever. I swear to God. Oh. I did want to say <laughs> one more thing about metal character ca categorization. When you said you didn't want to try and define what black metal is, I think it's also important to remember when we talk about metal uh, that a lot of these categories, they have what I call the Italian neorealism problem, right? Where you have a list of the check marks that a film needs to be for Italian neorealism, right? And you go through and you list that no use of uh, orchestral scores, use of non-actors, filming on locations, avoidance of sentimental or melodramatic plot points, right? And you go through them and they exclude open city, which is the film that invented Italian neorealism, right? Because it's defined post facto. So the film that invented it doesn't count once they start and try and define it. That's how metal categories are, is that there a lot of them are defined post facto. So if you start to get into like, is it death metal or black metal? You're going to run into that a lot of the time. And I think that that's, you know, I will probably, I will definitely use categorizations wrong throughout this episode, and I probably don't understand the dark heart of what black metal is. But it, but I think it's also these are these are shifting categories like any time you try and define Viking art. Viking metal apparently is what Bathory became. <laughs> Yes. Yes. So I think the only thing we can say for sure is we will definitely use words wrong. We will definitely <laughs> have people who will disagree with us. It's part of the whole thing. So that's that's the joy. You just got to lean into it. I will give you an anecdote, though, to tell you the, the very explicit difference between death metal and black metal. Ooh. Because one of the things about... Um, metal shows it's like there's always a mixed bill like it's very yeah. rare that you're going to go see five bands in a night and they're all going to kind of be the same thing so i remember very distinctly going to see um a bill that was a mix of like half black metal and half death metal and there's a band <laughs> called origin and the thing about death metal guys is they all kind of have this like real thick neck like they're really big guys a lot of the time like they're that phenotype and i remember he calls from the stage he's like 
I want all the black metal kids to line up on this side. And I want all the death metal kids to line up on that side. And of course, I'm 100 years old. So I'm in the balcony going like, this is not going to be good. Because you see like all the black metal kids on one side and they're like skinny and pale. And then you see all the like, you know, death metal guys on the other side. And they've either been pumping iron or just like eating a lot of Cheetos. So you got some (laughs) big boys on that side of the house. And they do what's like the wall of death where they just run at each other in the middle. And I'm like, dude, (laughs) I I know where I'm placing my bet there. Um, that might be the best, uh, distinction I've ever heard drawn between the two genres. Cause we'll get into it too. But to me, what defines black metal is that it attracts super dorks, right? Yes. That that's, yes. that's something very essential about black metal that we'll get into in it. But let's do our aperitif pairings with every, um, uh, book that we do on here. We do an aperitif pairing to bring us into the world of the book and then a dessert pairing to sort of take us out, maybe further study or a capper or whatever you want to do. So, um, I think we should start with you, with you doing your aperitif pairing, uh, Kate, just cause you're the one who should should lead us all into this, I think. And then John and I can go with our, our more meager pairings, I'm sure. <laughs> okay, so as your Sherpa, I realized that I, <laughs> I would not be able to make a better playlist than Peak did himself when he offered one to accompany his book. Because I think in, in going through it, the really interesting thing is, as somebody who's like a little bit inside baseball, I'm like, oh, yeah, okay, I, I got it. That's that's who you were like kind of referring to when you said that. And there were a couple of times where I'm like, oh, okay, that was a reference to XYZ. So pointing out in his playlist, first of all, he starts out with Bathory. My personal choice, he says a fine day to die, which is a lot of people's favorite. I would say blood, fire, death is like the song. And he references that in the book. He also talks about Olver and their first three albums are like, iconic black metal albums um in in the norwegian mold yeah but he would go on to do um uh like neo folk and like synth pop and prog rock later in his career so olver is like a super interesting band one of my favorites um Drudk is on here furrows of the gods they are uh, a ukrainian band that is very into um folkloric themes and like cultural themes from Ukraine and their stuff is very beautiful like their their music is still has that like tremolo picking mm-hmm. and and the heavy drum but like it's almost sentimental um so beautiful music um I, and when, that one stuck with me too I was very very epic yes song. they're fantastic and actually oh my that... god you're gonna turn John into a metalhead by the yes! end of this I never thought it was possible <laughs> Well, there's so much to it. And I think, you know, to the point that the things that might be the most popular or the most, the least occult, if you want to call it that, like, uh, aren't necessarily the things that are going to have an appeal to people like us who are the nerds, right? Like, we are the nerds. (laughs) This is what we like. Like, I want something that makes me want to, like, read a book or pick something up. And then the other one that I wanted to point out was... um, Windier, the blacksmith and the and the troll of Lundmiri, which I am pronouncing in my usual tenebrous Kate inability to pronounce foreign words way. That's but perfect Windier for this show. <laughs> is a band um, that became, I guess, like their their notoriety was one of the members actually tried to go like raw camping in the forest and froze to death. <laughs> so whether it was yeah. like an intentional taking of his own life or an accident or misadventure, um, that's sort of their story. So. 
again, you have all, all of these threads that are kind of kind of like bubble up in the book. But I thought it was cool that he points out the specific tracks that a person could listen to to get the right sort of gestalt to go into his book. Absolutely. Perfect. And they're all like seven and eight minutes long too. So yeah, that's it's a not, short it's one. It's not like a small playlist. <laughs> yeah. It'll take some time, about as long as it would take you to read the book to listen to the entire set. Totally. Um, I I am going to also pick a song and I'll get mine out of the way quick because I think it's a little weaker. There's actually, this isn't my choice, but there's a book we covered. I don't know if you're going to pick it, John, called Generation Loss, which is very similar to this book, except it's like the terrible version of what this is trying to do. It's it's like the punk Iowa writer school version of this, where somebody is is sort of a former, you know, musician who's strung out on heroin is or formerly strung out. I guess she's recovering in that book is like sent into the heart of darkness to find a reclusive artist that seems to have connections to the occult and murder and mayhem happens. Right. Only it's terrible. I don't I've, I looked up the author after reading it and she indeed is like a fiction professor who teaches like graduate students. And it just has that they all write the same. There's some factory that's printing those people in a press and they all write exactly the same. It's all terrible. Right. And, but I don't want to recommend generation loss because I don't want anybody to read that book. So I'm going to pick the the less interesting. I think you should listen to a song too. Um, I think you should listen to chainsaw guts fuck by mayhem. Right. Because noise mayhem is, is important in sort of the black metal um, uh, uh, they were a Norwegian metal band. They're sort of the Scandinavian metal. A lot of the mythos of black metal comes out of mayhem because they had a vocalist um, named Dead uh, who is generally credited as inventing using the specific kind of corpse paint they use in black metal. Um, but he also killed himself. And very notoriously, another band member took photos of his body posed and it was used as a cover for a bootleg album of, of theirs later on. Um, Dawn of the Blackhearts? I think that's what that bootleg album is called. Correct. Um, Plus five. <laughs> and and so that's a lot to begin with. And the band like made, of the, the guy, Euronymous, who found his body, they made like jewelry out of his skull and fragments and stuff. And then that guy who took the photo was then killed by another band member named Varg Vikernes, uh, who's of most famously a Burzum, which is mentioned in this book as well. Um, you're nodding. Chime in. <laughs> oh no no I'm, I'm enjoying I, I I'm enjoying hearing a, a voice that's not mine talking about this shit right now so yeah um one of the one of one of the sports of anyone in black metal is following whatever fucking nonsense comes out of Varg Vickerness's oh, mouth God. um I think he has a French nom de guerre now um oh, he's he? involved in yeah he's I think he's in France um but yeah, but mayhem is is important. A lot of I think the mythos around like how extreme black metal went comes out of this band specifically, and and especially because Dead was like very notorious for his live shows and what he would do, and um, but also that they are were like sort of nerdy losers, like all working in a record store that was owned by one of their moms, and you know they were that kind of people. And Dead is a tragic story. He was like a sad kid. Kid, you know, who was sort of like, I think a lot of people attracted to metal, tr trying to find a place to fit in where like his inherent darkness and unhappiness as a person could find a home. He's like a tragic story, but it gets blown up into this like 
epic tale of like murder and mayhem, you know, uh, around him. So I think it's interesting to think about it. Also, if you've only heard metal in sort of a mainstream context, listening to something like Chainsaw Gutsfuck, it's very, very lo-fi. It's very, very sloppy. It has much more in common with like four track basement recordings and punk rock than it what it does with like you know than it does with like maiden or judas priest you know what i mean it it sounds very raw and you can sort of feel that these are a bunch of kids when you listen to it and i think that that's something for a lot of this stuff especially because metal music is so associated with virtuosity and for so long in the 80s and that you know so much of um the aspiration it's not that metal musicians all want to be in malmstein but he's there's definitely a lot of them who are like this is the height of what it can be that sort of like classical ultra trained guitarist kind of stuff and this is sort of the other side of it and if you haven't heard it i think it's good to hear this sort of messy lo-fi uh, punk rockish in spirit if not in execution sort of uh music too all right great that's definitely going to come up you know as we're talking um about the book um so since i didn't have the reference of black metal going into this i kind of accessed it through uh what peaks other clear influence to this book is which is cosmic horror right or uh weird weird fiction or lovecraftian horror however you want to put it there's lots of different names for sort of the same subgenre, but cosmic horror basically what it comes down to is that everything we know is wrong, right? Our faith and belief in an ordered universe is false. Instead of a benevolent God and fate and balance, reality is actually chaos and tentacled fish gods, right? Or it's <laughs> determined by a hack horror paperback writer. Cosmic horror is sort of the idea of uh, order being demolished on a cosmic scale, but it's always through the perception of an individual. So, you know, there are plenty of horror stories where, you know, London's being attacked by giant rats or, you know, uh, there's a plague that's destroying all of humanity, but it's, you know, uh, on a global scale and you have multiple characters. I feel like one thing that really defines this particular subgenre of horror is following the individual and like their question of like, what is my life mean? And what is, what, why was I born? What is the whole world? You know, uh, is there some kind of an aura I'm supposed to be following? And it, and it slowly slips away from them. That's sort of what Lovecraft kind of introduced to horror fiction and what so many others have kind of emulated, including this book. And the specific cosmic uh, horror I decided to pick was uh, Grimm's Scribe, His Lives and Works by Thomas Ligotti. Uh, obviously, Peake owes a lot to Ligotti. He has not only mentioned him in interviews as an influence for this book, he's mentioned Ligotti's influences, the ones he always mentions, which are like Bruno Schulz and uh, John Hawks and people like that. So clearly he loves his books and Ligotti is, is a great writer. And Grimscribe is a um, a collection of short stories, really terrific short stories that are all in sort of this similar theme, this cosmic horror theme. And the one that I really love is the glamour, which is uh, set in like a rundown part of town where this guy finds this movie theater that he's never been to before. And it's basically like if David Cronenberg could design a movie theater, it would be this place, like the insides are like the color of like the inside of a body. And it has like moving parts and as he watches the movie that they're showing, he's realizing that, you know, the things he's seen on screens are like part of what's going on in his reality, too. And like parts of the seat are like like the slimy parts of the seat are like holding him down and like he, they won't let him leave. And the thing that I think kind of 
peak would love about this story and probably took from this story is just sort of the immediate kind of feeling of loneliness, isolation, and just the uh, decadence of this part of town, this kind of incredibly dilapidated, lonely part of the city, uh, which for the first half of um, Corpse Painter we'll get into and talk about really kind of uses that visual quite a bit. So I really enjoy that. Uh, another thing from Cosmic Core, just uh, Bill Ryan wrote a, a piece on Lagodi recently. And I think he summed it up really well in a sentence which he said something like, real life is a nightmare that just barely masks a greater nightmare. You know, that at the beginning of everything, you're already feeling like life is just miserable. But don't worry, there's something even worse and more unacceptable that you're going to unearth by the end of this book. And certainly that's what happens in uh, in Corpse Paint. But wait, it gets worse. I love that. <laughs> that's the best kind of story. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, I love it. Of course. So before we do get into the book and, uh, you know, uh, get into the specifics of the plot, it's called Corpse Paint. Kate, just give me like a little bit of background on Corpse Paint, if you could. Um, you guys did actually did a, an episode uh, not too long ago on somebody who is considered one of the forerunners of of, of Corpse Paint or the, or the did earlier Corpse Paint, which is, um, uh, oh my God, I can't think of his name now. Um, Screaming Jay Hawkins. Yes. Okay. So Corpse Paint is actually like semi-controversial because, uh, you know, today in 2022, it's kind of considered to be a cliche, right? But what is Corpse Paint? It's that black and white face paint that was favored by the the early um, Norwegian black metal bands. So it, it it's from the 90s. You saw it being worn um non-ironically right like uh like chris had talked about with dead like he would paint the the eyes very black and and the mouth would kind of be like drippy with black and then just like this smeary white paint and it's very visually striking but i think it's become a meme because it is so visually striking right like you see um one of the memes is black metalist Krieg and you'll see people doing like, you know, mowing the lawn is Krieg in the, <laughs> the face paint and stuff. And like, it's funny. It's cute. I think it's, it's something that metal people can poke fun of themselves about, but there are still bands that are using um, corpse paint. You know, like I, I went to see a band um, not too terribly long ago called Merck and they still use the corpse corpse paint. They're a Norwegian band. They have the full endorsement of Fenris, who is another character, like person from this, you know, original <laughs> um, uh, scene, the original Norwegian scene. So like there are still people who are doing it genuinely. But, um, you know, what does it look like? Um, Alice Cooper looks a lot like Alice Cooper. You know, it looks a lot like Screaming Jay when he would do, you know, skull face paint or something. It's got that kind of like voodoo magic idea. And I got to tell you, like, as someone who's done the corpse paint thing for, for Halloween, like, it's really fun. Like, people really react to that. <laughs> Let me tell you, like, like, there's a visceral reaction you get from people looking at your face like that. That's like, ooh, this is kind of interesting psychologically. So I can see why they did it. And can I ask you, could you just take us through, we've we've sort of alluded to it without mentioning it directly, like what is the like the the black metal Norwegian, like what is that scene? When does it, it's early 90s, what does it come out of? What does it lead into sort of thing? Sure. So, you know, in the like early 90s, you have this group of 
young people like very young like these guys are like some of them are in their teens to early 20s um that form a group of bands that are generally thought to be like it's the second wave of black metal if you want to be like a nerd about it but like they're generally (laughs) like when we talk about black metal these are the bands we're talking about and it's really dark throne emperor mayhem are like the big three and um it's this very um intentionally primitive sounding music that they would record on four four to eight track recorders and it was intentionally meant to be like very brutal very primitive very fast very complicated so there's it's this interesting thing of like what is a 17 year old boy who's lived in relative privilege in this northern european area what's his idea of like what's something that's going to really get a rise out of people you know so what do they do they adopt a lot of satanic imagery this leader kind of morphs into this nationalistic fantasy of going back to the pagan roots of norway and 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 of the the um you know norse and scandinavian countries right like this all kind of bubbles up in this very hot house of young man culture way and the most notorious events you know you already talked about a little bit with mayhem right you have death suicide you have euronymous taking the picture using it on dawn of the black hearts then um varg vickerness murders euronymous for reasons that are legendarily unclear at this point i think it's fair to say um <laughs> but, you know, but frequently they do seem to boil down to you're not metal enough. In the case of Varg and Euronymous, it really does seem to be like some kind of like metal dick swinging gatekeeper contest. Yeah. You also have at the same time, um, Vickerness is involved in church burnings of the the wooden churches in Norway as the symbolic, like we're going back to the pagan origins kind of um, act, which is... I guess it's like vandalism masquerading as terrorism. Um, <laughs> so, you know, you have this, you have Faust from Emperor um, had participated in like a gay hate crime murder. Like these are not nice people. Yes, that's um, one thing I, I feel yeah. like we should mention up front. More than any other metal genre, except for straight white supremacist metal, black metal has a racism problem too, uh, more than any other genre, I would say. And it's hard to say how much of that is just Varg and sort of his influence bleeding out and how much is endemic to that scene. But you'll see it alluded to in this book too, where it's, and it's not like, oh, they used the racist trope of the angry black lady at the post office. No, it's black people are subhuman style racism when it comes out of Varg. And that might be Uh, sort of a... a appropriate in a weird way only because it marries that scene with cosmic horror which emanates from another problematic source which is hp lovecraft <laughs> yes who had similar feelings 100 and i think that's why this source material works so perfectly as like what is cosmic horror it's xenophobia it's just the xeno is a lot bigger <laughs> and from a different planet or a different like plane of space so you know yes would i say that there are elements of the scene that have problems with this I mean, yeah, they they say it. It's not like they're not keeping it a secret, right? Would I say that the scene is inherently that? No, Mm -hmm. because I think there's also an element of, especially in certain quarters of the internet, of the witch hunt and the purity trial thing of like, am I allowed to listen to this album? Because this guy was friends with this guy back in 1992. And like, so if you get into the purity test, 
I will just tell you, it's just not for you. Yes. And that's okay. It's really, really okay. Like when we're talking about counterculture and we're talking about things that are outsider culture. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't have to be about you. That it doesn't can mean be, it can't you can be say it exists on the other side of a moral line and you're willing yeah. to explore that or not, you know, but we are going to be on the other side of that moral line today, yeah. I think is, is important. I think metal also has not a, um, not a problem. Metal has the same thing as punk again of taking on provocative imagery and poses just to provoke people that's maybe not sincere and is maybe a little bit of a joke. It's, you know, when you have like the album Speak English or Die, that's a phenomenal album and they swear it's a joke, but you listen to it and you go, I'm not necessarily hearing the jokey parts of this too. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's in it, metal sort of has that running through it too, where it's people trying to be provocative, sometimes in a completely inconsiderate, clumsy way where it's just like it's sledgehammer power being harnessed. And what's the biggest thing I can put on the end of this sledgehammer to hit my audience with some of the time. And it's not necessarily a philosophy the same way it wasn't uh, frequently with, with punk rock stuff where they would put on the, the Nazi uniforms or put on swastikas sort of thoughtlessly just as a way to make the audience angry, you know? Something that Peak also seems to kind of touch upon a little bit in the book is the idea of people with a political ideology versus people who just want to make music, you know? Yeah. They're kind of separating the art from the ideology, you know, obviously sort of a thing that obviously a lot of metal fans kind of take into account. I remember reading one article where someone said, uh, you have to go through like four or five Google searches before you make sure that your favorite metal band isn't connected to, you know, Vic and uh, the the right wing and all that kind of stuff. Um, but, you know, with whether or not there's actually something to say here, I think kind of becomes interesting. You know, it's like, you know, this music obviously has is a very unique artwork in that, you know, it's goes very specifically against you know commercialism and you know uh, there's always saying like get me the worst mic you can and you know <laughs> film it in like a cold basement you know and uh you know obviously you're trying to go anti-norm with this kind of stuff and when you're doing that i mean the question is like are you actually making a statement or is making a statement kind of <laughs> anti-antithetical to what you're trying to do in the first place to make the artwork what it is yeah. And I agree with you 100% that it's okay that some things aren't for you. And to say that's repulsive, I think is fine too. I think when I, I really meant it when I said at the beginning of it, uh, if to create an indefensible artwork, which I think this is, that's not, this is not lining up for my defense of it. This is to simply say it it's transgressive outsider uh, art. It exists across that moral line. And that's interesting to me. If it's 0% interesting to you, that's fine. I agree with you. you like exactly what you're saying. Like this will fail a purity test. This is not what that is for. This is not the reason for this thing's existence. And I think it's far more interesting than something, again, to compare it like generation loss, which plays very carefully in between the lines. And if their character, it's not sympathetic enough, let me give her a her lesbian lover died on 9-11 backstory just to make sure no! that, that you like her enough you know because maybe she's not she is a heroin addict maybe if there's a tragedy to explain it and not just like the main character of this book who's a heroin addict because he's a loser asshole you know what i mean like most heroin addicts you know <laughs> and so that's a that's an to me it's a much more honest depiction of of 
heroin addiction in this book than that other book. And I think that it's also, you know, that other book, I always say about the people I've known who have been into heroin, everybody I've ever known who's done heroin has done it with like the idea in the back of their head about writing a book about how their life got really out of control. That's like a part of doing it. It's like the lamest, most performative drug in the world. Like you guys don't want to know things got really crazy. Then I was doing heroin. That feels like, and this book has none of that romanticization of it, you know? It's just like, this guy's a nightmare to deal with because he's strung out, God damn it, you know? Which is the reality. Which is a good segue into uh, introducing some of our characters. Do you mind, Kate, if we get into the book at this point? Oh, I mind terribly. Let's never talk about the book. <laughs> no, let's, done. Let's Thanks, everybody. Thanks book. for listening. <laughs> Uh, so our two main characters that we've been uh, talking about, the first one is Max, okay? And his nom de guerre is Strigoi, which is, uh, in Romanian mythology, troubled spirits who rise up from the grave, which is appropriate because that's what Max essentially is trying to do when we meet him. He is um, he's responsible for, like, three of the most important black metal albums, the 90s. And, you know, they people still talk about it today. But in the 25 years after that, he has produced nothing of note um he's been kind of experimenting with different sounds and trying to kind of do something new and say something where he really has nothing new to say and he has just been throwing away money and studio time and um anytime he meets a fan all he want to talk about are these first three albums that he had made with his band uh angelus mortis and the three albums are Hinosis, fields of punishment and telos which are you know Again, you know, considered just milestones of the genre, but he is practically forgotten at this point in his life. You know, people obviously love him when they see him, but he's not in the conversation anymore. So what he's trying to do is travel from America over to the Ukraine to hook up with this band. And uh, his record label has set it all up that he's going to make something new that's actually going to be as important as those first three albums that he just can't get over. That's what something I always think about is uh, there's something worse than the one hit wonder is like when you've done two or three really great things and then nothing good after that, because it's not just that like there's that one thing that you were known for, like this is the one thing I wanted to say. It's like you had it and you clearly lost it. Like there's clearly a point where whatever you were trying to do, whatever was going to try to make you unique went away, you know, and you are now completely irrelevant. And that's something that he really struggles with. That's the reason that he has gotten so heavily into drugs and why he has uh, hired this young drummer um, named Roland to, to join him on his journey. Uh, even though it is uh, not, a, is not a good relationship. It's funny. We were talking about um, dead and Euronymous, and I was reading about, their life together in the house that the band all shared together and how they would just get on each other's nerves, how Euronymous would like do things like shoot off guns near dead's, you know, uh, close to dead to just freak him out and, and uh, harass him and irritate him basically drove him to suicide more or less. And you get a lot of that from these two characters because Max is constantly fucking with Roland and just uh, doing things just out of cruelty and spite. And it kind of forms the, the relationship of the first, you know, third of this book are these two guys on their journey, which just seems completely awful. <laughs> <You know? laughs> like these are just two guys you would not want to hang around at all. But they start out in Chicago. At one point, Max, who uh, is Jones and for a fix, goes to like the bad part of Chicago. I kind of had the feeling of like uh, Cabrini Green from Candyman, that kind of area. Just somewhere you would not want to be caught after hours at all. And um, sure, sure enough, they both get, you know, almost killed. They barely escape with their lives. And uh, 
finally somehow end up on a plane to uh, to Prague, um, which is where the next part of the the book starts. And it's it's, it's really... Praha, John. You'd learn that quickly if you had been there, like Max and Roland. <laughs> <laughs> that for me is where the book really starts to get interesting, especially when Roland kind of goes off on his own. Of course, Max, you know meets a bartender who's a fan and, you know, of the first three albums and gets pissed off and just kind of abandons Roland in the middle of Prague, which he is completely unfamiliar with. Uh, so he's just kind of walking around, not knowing where he's supposed to go. And he finds, um, as he's walking around, he finds, uh, oh, excuse me. And as he's walking around, he finds the astronomical clock, right. And uh, kind of admires it. And I think that this moment is interesting with the quote that I kind of opened the episode with, which was from Max's point of view when it comes to his music, that he wants to, he loves the decay. He loves, you know, the disorder, this disconcordant of the uh, coordination of the, of the music. But what Roland, who's a drummer sees when he finds the astronomical clock, I'm just going to read this a little bit of the um, book right here says uh, soon enough, he heard riffs taking shape, bubbling up through his thoughts, like a primordial ooze. A few notes at first, finding their rhythm and then a complete bar. It always started like this with a riff, then a tomolo line. And these two things would always complete their circle, sync up, meet back at the beginning. He let the patterns emerge all on their own, hearing out the riff again and again and again. The song would evolve. The tempo would slow. He imagined the song being born like a planet, one layer at a time. And he remembered the astronomical clock, the patience and discipline required by those who had mapped out the universe. And this is interesting because, again kind of the idea right the sort of uh popular idea of black metal is it's not supposed to sync up it's not supposed to have like that center but he thinks but he thinks of it in that way the complete opposite of max and again that's where kind of the cosmic horror angle comes in because if the idea is well there is a center to the universe there is like an order and a balance that i can like tap into and i can be a part of he finds it he finds the inspiration to that in the astronomical clock and the horror, the ultimate horror of him and his fate is that it's going to, you know, descend into this idea more of disorder and chaos, which Max is, you know, the one trying to tap into, um, which makes an interesting balance for these characters. So anyway, they finally end up taking a train together where again, Max fucks with Roland by hiding weapons that he is, uh, uh, procured because he's been told, uh, that, um, that the uh, commune that they're going to is dangerous, that they, he should actually watch out. So he hides all his weapons in Roland's suitcase, which is actually seen right out of uh, a documentary, Kate, that you had uh, um, you had told me to watch. And now I can't until the light saying. takes us, yeah, until the light takes us, where um, Ben Fedsrig, right? Fenris, Fenris, Fenris <laughs> yes. is on the train. And gets uh, gets stopped by police, and they like find tear gas in his uh, suitcase, and he has to pay a fine for it. And so he's like, uh, you know, uh, you know, they're obviously they're profiling me. They like see how I look, and so they check my bags. It's like, but you had tear gas. Man. <laughs> uh, and yeah, went, but so they... finding me, that shit was racist. <laughs> exactly. Um... <laughs> so they take the train to the Ukraine, and Kate, I'm going to let you take over. Who do they meet in the Ukraine? Okay, so once they are in Ukraine, they connect with the mysterious band um, that is going to kind of breathe new life and help Max um, breathe new life into Angelus Mortis. And that is a band called Wisdom of Silenus. And um, Silenus in Greek mythology is actually the fawn. So it's the um, half man wild creature that accompanies Dionysus. 
And so you have this idea right there of like this back to the earth with a little bit of wildness, unpredictability, vi the, the threat of violence, just right in the name. And if Max and Roland kind of represent this decadent, etholess West, right, where like Max is interested in getting high and making music and like pissing people off. And Roland is this like barely constrained um, person who has like fits of violence, but like they're meaningless fits of violence, they're self-defense violence, they're acting out. Then the people in Ukraine, Wisdom of Silenus, really represent what happens when this same kind of anger and this same kind of um, acting out is combined with a worldview <laughs> and combined with an ethos. And you know, it's noteworthy that we're setting this band in Ukraine, right? Because right now, and probably for like the past decade or more, um, Eastern European black metal has a, a a lot of national socialist bands. Like they they definitely have. That's that's kind of like if you're in Eastern European black metal, people are really like applying that purity test because there's a disproportionate number of bands that fit into that category um so it is a meaningful decision to set it here so who are these people who are in this very extreme band with this very extreme lifestyle they're living on a compound they're growing their own food they're farming animals like it's a very um self self-situated group of folks they're also doing things like training each other in weapons you know <laughs> so clearly there's something going on where they're like huh this isn't just a compound they're prepping for something so the individuals there grigor is the first person we meet and he is a musician in wisdom and he serves as the initial liaison for max and roland so he's physically intimidating right he's large scowling shaven headed he introduces visitors to the compound to the rules, right? They have like a set of laws and not rules, laws, mind you, that includes like taking them to the compound via the wintry forest, even though it's an easier route, they can just follow a road, right? Like they're driving trucks in and out. But in order to be sort of indoctrinated in, you have to go through this physical scathing I guess, like passage into the netherworld, if we want to think about, you know, a hero's journey, if anybody in this book can be called a hero. Um, we have Surely a Roland is the hero of the oh. book. <laughs> yeah, you know, Ro poor Roland, man. We've, we've all known a Roland oh who's like a God. little bit sensitive has had some hard shakes from life. Um, if you were in bands in uh, your teenage years, there was one Roland that was like on your couch for three months and you had to give him the like, you gotta go, man, talk, you know? Dude, yeah. I think, you know, when I think of the Max and Roland characters, it's like, too real. <laughs> yes. <laughs> a little bit too real based on conversations that I've had. Yeah, um, but I should say, like, real in the sense of, like, no, actually, like, these remind me of people I knew with no sort of, like, people who are in bands romanticize bands a huge amount. Oh, yeah. And they romanticize the negative behavior of bands a huge amount, too. That's so much of what black metal is building their own mythology. This is neither of that. These are like, oh, fuck, I know these guys. These characters both owe me $30. You know what yes. I mean? <laughs> okay, not for nothing, but, like... 
it's people like this that's why I have a pseudonym (laughs) (laughs) and it's people like this that are that are the reason why we have our like nightclub and party friends and then we have like our actual friends who can know our last name and things like that so yeah (laughs) um (laughs) not I'm I'm happy to say I do not know people like the ones in Wisdom of Silenus though so yeah yeah. (laughs) those those you've been to like a concert that they were at and been yeah, like this dog. is a bad scene let's not stay for the whole bill oh that, dude that that is those characters where you're like where are we going for this party and then you get there and you're like i gotta go to the 7-eleven i'll get us a six-pack and then you're done for the night you know what i mean yes that, that's those are those guys yeah there was actually a european uh, metal festival where i was hanging out with guys from a record label in russia but in saint petersburg yeah. and they wanted to talk about two things they wanted to talk about Charles Manson and the Beach Boys, like the connection between <laughs> Charles Manson and the Beach Boys. And they wanted it was to only know- Dennis. Yeah. <laughs> hey man, they, they recorded Cease to Exist, you know. I I like I actually like those Manson songs. I actually think they're good. Anyway. Okay, we need to do another episode. And they wanted to talk about they wanted to talk about um playing Dungeons and Dragons when I was a kid because they weren't allowed to do it because it was oh. Eastern Block. So they wanted to talk about Charles Manson and Dungeons and Dragons. So they were like very Western. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but but back to our story. I could digress like forever. You guys make this too fun. So <laughs> um we have a second member of wisdom um whose character named roman and he's not very well developed he's kind of in the background and you can tell that like he's willing to get down with shit if he needs to like he's a little sinister but gregor is really the one who presents this like physical intimidation but there is a person at the philosophical heart of wisdom of Silenus that really holds the commune together. And this is a woman called Seth. And she's portrayed as being just extremely physically beautiful, but also um, a person with like inner power and really intimidating to the men around her. So even though she's this beautiful blonde woman, like she holds a sway over people that's a that's more than just a sexual sway, right? Like she makes her own calls. She determines what happens at this um, compound. Um, Grigor is her lover, but she makes it really clear that this re- this is a relationship on her terms, right? She invites him in. He is allowed to be here and she will take other lovers, um, you know, if she so desires. She was actually raised by neo-pagan parents and has uh, inherited her worldview from them. And also because they lived off the grid, she can now um, bring these skills to the rest of the people at the compound. And for generations, her family has dedicated their service to an entity they refer to as the Lord, a metaphysical being that's like part warlock, part legendary king, and maybe even a little seasoning of Sauron for good measure. Because <laughs> um, another thing that black metal people really like, especially in that that first wave, is they love Tolkien, but like kind of didn't realize that Sauron was the bad guy. <laughs> you know what you know, he reminded me? Maybe just because I've been playing it. He reminded me a lot of like every boss in Elden Ring is what he reminded <laughs> yes. me of. Yes, <laughs> He's no. like every single boss you come in Elden Ring. It's just like this giant cosmic warrior god who's very sad, you know? <laughs> I did yes, notice that a boss. lot of black metal songs have titles like Frolic of the Orcs and things like that. Yes. Yeah. Oh, oh, dude. Well, um, before he was Varg Vikernes, he was Count Grishnok. 
which oh, is yeah. yeah, which is um one of the Orc High, I think, in in Lord of the Rings. So yeah, they nerds, dude. They big nerds. <laughs> <laughs> And and rounding out the core group of people on the compound is Taris, who is this mysterious, almost like Rasputin-like mystic. Spooky Taris. Yeah, spooky Taris. Yeah, when you <laughs> described her power, I was thinking she's like a Tsarina because she has her Rasputin with her there too. Anyway. Very much so. Very much so. And so he just kind of shows up at the compound from out of nowhere. But because he has this gift for divination and he's very spiritually aligned with the group's goals, he sort of earned this special place in the community. So he wears a broad brimmed hat. He has ragged black garb. He has a long beard. He's grimdark Gandalf. <laughs> it's amazing. <laughs> but I would be remiss if I did not mention who might be my favorite character is Liko the goat. He's a, there's a, there's a little black goat who gets born kind of like black Philip in the witch. Um, but he's little and he's like deformed. He's got one eye and he's a limp and he may very well be the portent of the end times. And he is named after a Slavic forest goblin that is the embodiment of misfortune. So will our friend Liko live up to his name we will find out and it's also important to mention with Liko, he gets his own chapter from his perspective yes! where we see the world. animal pov yeah it's very hills have eyes part two where we have the whole section from the oh. dog's perspective oh so. dude i want to get into animal pov when we get there because <laughs> i have opinions <laughs> um sorry john i'll let no, you i was gonna say these are these are our characters uh and uh this is these are these are the ones who have been put together by fate in this book. Um, should Roland to should should Roland to should mention to that Roland uh, has kind of like a shady background where he's coming from uh, Washington State, and uh, yeah. I don't think it's ever made explicit what he did there, but he mentions like gouging out the eye of a thief and a rapist at a YMCA. Uh, and that's what he's kind of trying to run away from. He's kind of trying to find like his purpose by hooking up with Max. And the and phrase is caved his Europe. face. And I don't think it's ambiguous what he did. <laughs> okay. Well, yeah, but we don't know. We don't know the circumstances. We don't know if, you know, if that guy's guy okay, was in fact I, not a thief I, or a rapist. We don't know. What's I think on. he's probably dead, John. I don't think, <laughs> I think he's probably not. Okay. I well, that's not what I meant. But we don't know. <laughs> I mean, we don't know what the situation back in uh, Bellingham, Washington, was exactly. Um, could have just been happening something that happened um, in a dream. We don't even really know. Um, but uh, I was want to say about Spooky Terrace. Uh, I totally see him being played by Tom Noonan. If they had made this into <laughs> love it, <laughs> definitely had that kind of tall, intimidating sort of guy. But um, so. So what did so what did the um so, uh, the Salinas uh, group the wisdom of Salinas which it's interesting to hear the background you described uh, there Kate because I know also that the wisdom of Salinas sp specifically is uh, kind of goes back for like a Greek again to Greek mythology where the god Salinas was captured by Midas who asked them like where do humans go from here and he says nothing for a long time and finally he basically says um, the his philosophy is it's better not to be born at all. When we are born, it's best to die as soon as we can, which is basically the anti-natalist yeah. philosophy that you see in a lot of cosmic horror. Thomas Ligotti is himself an anti-natalist, um, or as the great brother Theodore once put, the best thing is not to be born, but who is as lucky as that? To whom does it happen? Not to one in millions and millions of people. Uh, so you kind of understand that this commune has, you know, sort of 
end of the world aspirations, right? They kind of think that like their God is going to return and everything that they, all the suffering is all going to end, right? Because he's going to like put, put humanity to the test, put them on trial and then completely wipe them out. And that somehow Max, Strigoi and Roland are going to play a part in that. Sort of where we go, sort of where we go from there. Chris, what was your impression of the commune and kind of their involvement in them? Well, the the second part of the book follows them going to the compound just to to take us through the story. It's Max and Roland. They they arrive in the Ukraine. They're forced to walk through the forest by Grigor, like was mentioned. And then we spend a lot of this the second section, which is called. Um, the uh, the triumph of the dead. It's named after a Bruegel painting, which is essentially a, a drawing of a valley with with um, the rack wheels, the sort of torture wheels, on it. It's the cover of the book too that we, the edition that we have anyway. And yes. uh, just um, uh, uh, you know, mayhem, melee, suffering in a medieval context. It's sort of uh, rare for for Bruegel, who I don't think is as associated with with that kind of. Um, suffering. He tends to draw people, you know, delivering loaves of bread in a small town. So it's a it's a little bit outstanding for a Bruegel. It's memorable if you've seen it. Um, and, uh, and I like having that painting in the back of your head too while you're reading it, because the communist kind of describes being like cinder block shacks and yurts, you know. Yeah. There is this one. Um, oh, what they call it, like a shipping container, right? That yeah. they have like hidden, which is where they kind of take their <laughs> people who've transgressed, the prisoners. And all I could think of was there's like a there's like a giant cylinder in the painting yeah. in Triumph of Death where they're they leading like the skeletons are leading humanity into this thing, and so that's all I could think is like that's where you get led when you transgress into this cylinder, <laughs> this giant uh, totally container. <laughs> um, it's funny for me with the description of it. There's there's a big um, metal festival for winter solstice coming up. That that's how they sort of make their money is they have these bands come in and they do shows for like 200 people, kind of thing is sort of the incoming thing. It reminded me a lot of when I was reading. I was like, you know, I bet this is the place where they hold the Donny Brook too. It reminded <laughs> me of that kind of um, that kind of like sort of white trash. European white trash, but that's sort of like compound that has sort of like the shackish walls around it, sort of the the sheet metal walls and everything's unadorned because it got built by them and sort of semi-functional with generators sitting outside and, you know, sort of not enough stuff to it. And like some animals there and sort of this like, we're going to be a commune who does this sort of thing, but you go and you're like, oh, these poor animals are not well taken care of uh, kind of thing, you know, like they're able to grow potatoes or whatever, you know, kind of stuff um and but so when they get there you know the idea is sort of the the uh, the wisdom people have the idea that Max is going to be the one that's going to create the record that somehow fulfills these vague prophecies they're getting from Taurus, you know, sort of like maybe the coming of the end, maybe the return of their Lord. We don't really know what it's going to be somehow pleasing the Lord. But Max, who's this, you know, black metal musician is going to be it. And the moment Seth meets him, she's like, I don't think this is the guy, you know, she sort of has this reaction of like, I thought he would be interesting, but he's just another dude. He's a man like anybody else and she gets into roland though she's like instantly attracted to roland and finds him uh they sort of strike up a little relationship that seems unlike with gregor where she's sort of like inviting him telling him to come and go and doesn't mean anything where they feel like they're genuinely connecting right 
So Grigor, who's scary, gets jilted um, for Roland. Uh, Max, there's one thing about this this thing is that we've learned that there's a guy named Falchik who was formerly in the band who has uh, was not happy with living there and decided to make some extra money on the side by selling heroin. And Falchik has disappeared. Nobody knows where he is. The, the understanding is that Seth made him disappear because she dislikes drugs. She dislikes disorder. She's a very clean living person. And uh, so Max, who's going through heroin withdrawals, um, strikes up sort of with this young band led by a guy named Marks, a band named Corpse Masturbator, and uh, sort of says, hey, this is a nice demo. I'll pass it on my record label if you hook me up with some heroin, noticing that that uh, Mark, the singer of this band, has some track marks. So Max is already sort of courting trouble by trying to get some heroin, even though he's not supposed to be doing on that, even though he knows somebody's been killed over it already, even though it's got an overtly scary atmosphere, uh, overtly scary atmosphere. He's going after that as Roland is sort of going after Gregor's woman and sort of the, 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 the head of this makeshift commune, he's getting involved with her. So they're both courting trouble. Um, they're trying to make music. Roland is apparently a phenomenal drummer. He's got great ideas. Max is sort of a more feel it out kind of guy. It's not clicking, right? It's not working really well for them to, to create this album that's supposed to be so great. It's also mentioned that that Wisdom is like a band, but none of them seem to be contributing to the album is one thing that I was struck by. Seth is not sitting down and playing with them at all. It's sort of like these two guys are going to make the album in some way was something I noticed. Uh, so what happens is one night um, Max gets blackout crazy. You know, he he's early. The book is opening with him kicking and strangling Roland in his sleeping bag. We know when he gets blackout uh, fucked up that he's dangerous. Um, he disappears into the woods. They go and look for him. When they find come back, he's covered in blood with a knife at the show. The Winter Solstice Festival has happened and he's dangerous. He slaps a young woman and knocks her down uh, who works there. Sort of, they end up in the green room. There's a melee. Gregor is going to point a gun at Max's head. He clearly just wants violence. He's got like... Uh, unresolved emotions about Seth leaving him for Roland. Um, and Roland in turn has uh, un, un, unresolved emotions. He takes the knife from Max. Uh, he thinks Gregor is going to shoot Max. So he stabs Gregor to death sort of as a pretense. He hates him anyway and wants to kill him anyway, stabs him to death. This is after Max has sort of gotten his head pounded in, being pistol whipped by Gregor. It's mayhem. Mark is there. Everybody's there. Roman, who we've never heard of before, who becomes a main character because it seems like like they need to replace Grigor is there. Uh, they sort of need a henchman in some way. And uh, so Grigor's dead. Max is fucked up. Roland has transgressed the law. The next scene is Roland wakes up in this makeshift underground bunker cell that you mentioned, John. And Seth tells him the story of her God, the story that we've just heard, who's sort of like in ancient times when there were many warring tribes, this guy harnessed black magic and sort of became a warrior God that ascended above all else. And now he watches over the, the universe. You know, he's sort of our guy, you know, this 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 Lord who was a real guy who has a real bloodline, we'll find out. Um, but he ascended just by being the strongest and the most willing to harness 
the misery of the world. That's sort of his trademark is going to places that have been pockmarked by misery and inflicting more misery on them to sort of like win them over. It's sort of like taking broken people and completely breaking them to rebuild them as like their warlord is the the story of his cell. The old god Leviathan, uh, which, you know, Roland is like, you worship a fish, you know, kind of reaction to this. And she's like, this is another Christian Bible lie. You know, this is Leviathan, the swallower of world worlds. And he was a real dude who existed. And, you know, this is the story of him. So after this little speech, Roland, who is very skeptical, who's realizing the cops aren't coming, you know, and that there's nobody here to say him, he gets hooded and, and loaded into a truck. He gets, you know, waterboarded, beer boarded. Is that a better way to describe it? And then walked through the woods. Um, you know, he's eventually let out and pushed into the basement through a crevice of a spooky castle's dungeon and has it sealed up behind him. And that's where the second chapter triumph of the dead, uh, our triumph of death leaves us. Um, and this is where the book there, it's gotta be pointed out up until this point, there is nothing supernatural in this book. This is a very straight ahead sort of crime violence horror book. You know, that kind of horror book that straddles the line of like being true crime, something like angst. You know what I mean? That's really just trying to put you in the room with unpleasant people and sort of keep slicing the pie, as they say, until you're really pressed right up against people you don't want to be around. It's that kind of horror book until this point. But then this takes us into the second half of the book, which, Kate, I will let you walk us through, I believe, right? Or did we did we have yes. stuff we wanted to talk about that before we jump into it, John? Okay, well, yeah. Chris, what you were saying earlier about uh, the metal scene being sort of like a, a dick swinging contest, you know, you're, I'm more metal than you are, uh, is sort of what is in Roland's head, I think, when it kind of leads to this, uh, the, the crime section of the book kind of leads to this murder, because he all he's thinking, you know, obviously he's been... He's been ha he's been harried by hanging out with Max for way too long, you know, and seeing sort of you know uh, this is what real metal is. I'm the I'm an obnoxious drug addict, and uh, and he feels like he needs to kind of man up to a certain degree, especially with this guy Gregor hanging around, and he had, goes through this whole like weird mental gymnastics around him, like this is it, this is he's gonna he's coming to kill me, so I gotta like I gotta do it, I gotta do my thing, I gotta, I gotta kill him first. It's this kind of big build up to what sort of kind of an inevitability that the you know these two would code clash at some point yes for sure for sure also love when they first uh come to the commune and all they've been doing to all the people in the commune just speak glowingly of it they're like we have our own system you know our own plumbing or whatever you know and like we got all these animals and we figured out how to live outside of you know society and it just sounds miserable it just sounds like a place i would never ever want to be and one of the first things they do is uh seth gets really mad at them for when they arrive and they they feed them and they don't say thank you yeah. it's like, you guys have just made these dudes trudge through the wilderness <laughs> to your you know uh primitive com commune and you fed them something you know they're used to actual food and you fed them what you fed them and like you're indignant that they don't say thank you he's <laughs> just like me like give me a break lady <laughs> yeah the culture clash stuff i think is really well done in this because like they're a cult 
You know, these people are coming <laughs> into a cult. And so the cult obviously has in, has all these indoctrinated people where, where this is normal and this is this is great. We're we're self-sufficient in our way, even though our generators are totally going to break down and our animals aren't really doing that awesome. But like coming people coming in who, again, have this like, I guess, the decadent Western ethos, like it's just, you know, things are going to go bad from minute one because these guys don't even understand, like, why? do i have to do this track this is dumb we could have just walked up the road but yeah. no like you're you're now part of the cult like these are important rituals this is sacred stuff you're participating in so. yeah it's yeah the contrast they... between them going to burger king and kfc when they're wandering around Prague yeah. and and when they get to the ukraine is is a big contrast to eating like boiled cabbage which is i believe what they're served when they get there and yeah. she's like they're not thanking me so they're like they just were eating kfc they're not going to thank you for the for the boiled cabbage lady it's funny too because it has sort of like aspects of folk horror you know you're kind of expecting you know them to be kind of indoctrinated or you know preyed upon by this cult but uh especially because max has met his old buddy agnes while they were in praha and she warns him in a very kind of Maria Ospenskaya in the Wolfman sort of way of like, <laughs> these people are da dangerous. You don't want to go there. You know, Wisdom of Salinas are bad people. And it's really just, they're just kind of barely hanging on as it is. <laughs> like they seem like they really don't have their shit together when they get there. And it's, it's funny how not scary they are, you know, when you kind of like get into their heads and kind of other than, you know, Gregor obviously was like a giant dude you wouldn't want to mess with. They just seem like, you know, they're probably like a month away from like everything going to shit, no matter what happens. Well, reading scenario. it, not knowing anything about it, I thought it was going into green room territory when yes. they got there. Sure. I thought it was going to I was be... going to point that out. <laughs> yeah. No, go on. You you talk about it rather than me. I'd rather hear oh, your no, thoughts. No, no, no. <laughs> no, I was just so glad that you brought that up because I was like, you know, when I think about the atmosphere, I'm like, oh, it's green room. You know, yeah. like that's the closest thing that I think most people have to this. But it goes in a very very different direction <laughs> yeah so why don't you get into it talk about the the truly uh, <laughs> uh jaw-dropping third and fourth parts to this book okay well before i do whenever yeah. i visit another person's house we are very um spoilery on bad books like we'll just tell you everything that happens. yeah us too Okay, good. So yeah, I wanted same. to make sure that since I'm I'm in someone else's house, I'm following their rules. So spoilers ahoy. <laughs> All right. So well, with um, your show in particular, you talk about books that I would never in a million years read, and I'm glad you discuss them in detail. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I I like hearing sometimes, not all the time, but I'd say fifty fifty. You you read books that I'm like I wouldn't read that ever, and I like you going through it in a, in exceptional detail. So. Awesome. And you know. Um, my belief about spoilers is that if if it will ruin the experience of a book, a movie, a piece of art to know the beginning, middle and end, then that probably isn't something that I'm that interested in. Because if there's not anything about the right execution on. that makes it like exciting and different, then like. I just, you saved me time. You didn't spoil anything. So, <laughs> so I would say, you know, before I get into this, this is a worthy book to read. I think Peak is just a great author and you're going to find things in here that we haven't covered. So yeah. with that disclaimer, um, we go into part three, which is the fields of punishment. And again, if you were paying attention to the top of the show, 
all the section names are those three albums from Angelus Mortis. So the structure of the book is structured around that. So this section begins with, you know, what we had talked about earlier, one of my favorite things, animal POV. (laughs) (laughs) So... Animal POV is like, you see it in a lot of nature horror books. Like if you, if you've ever read any of those things, like I think Guy N. Smith's crab series, you get crab POV. <laughs> um, I, I believe, well, we just read the Wolfin for our podcast and you get like the Wolfin POV, like you get inside their head. So it's something that I really enjoy about like specifically like seventies and eighties paperback horror. So it was really nice to see it here. There's a book so, I've been trying to find forever. It was the basis for Air- Eric Red's werewolf movie, Bad Moon. It's called Thor. It's by Wayne Smith. And supposedly it's a werewolf book through the perspective of the dog the entire time. Oh, amazing. (laughs) I love it. I'm not sure I... No, I'm going to take that back, dude. You know the kind of garbage I read. I'm a freaking cultural <laughs> raccoon. Like, I, I'm just going to root through the garbage bin. Um, I do want to read that. <laughs> so... Um, we get Liko the Black Goat, um, who's wandering the compound, and he is having apocalyptic visions of fire and death. So you get this little goat who's like, man, I love the smell of napalm in the morning. <laughs> you know? So it's just it's it's just like a ballsy move, and I love it. So Max has been imprisoned by the remaining members of Wisdom of Silenus, because, of course, he has broken the law. And Seth realizes and explains to him that, like, you know, rules suppress and laws liberate, which, okay, difference of opinion there. (laughs) Um, Spooky Taris winds up feeding him heroin so that he can be docile, right? And and Max is not what we would call a deep thinker. So, you know, he's, while not happy with being imprisoned, is happy with unlimited heroin. So Max reveals to them that he has had a vision of the Lord, right? He can describe to them what this person looks like with the widow's peak and the expression. And Taris, of course, because he is this sort of um, wizardy character, interprets this as a sign that Max has a bigger purpose to fulfill. And meanwhile, Roland is busy losing his grip on reality while locked in a dungeon. And he has these epic hallucinations about the end of the world where four animal masked men repeatedly torture him on a wheel like the ones that we were just talking about from the triumph of death. And his visions take on this cosmic aspect that I thought was really cool where he's kind of like floating through time and space. And it reminded me a little bit of, um, you know, if we want to talk about weird fiction, um, William Hope Hodgson's House on the Borderland. Have you guys yes, read that? Absolutely. Oh, yeah. that's so good. What a it's weird great. book, dude. Like speaking of yes. books with a weird structure, that's bravura. So um, it also reminded me just sort of how he's trapped in a small amount of time of the jaunt, the Stephen King story where the guy mm. opens his eyes in the teleporter and it's like infinity he gets trapped in. And when he comes out, they're like, cause it's one blip from teleporter to teleporter, but he's like, been completely mentally shattered if you open your eyes in the teleporter you get trapped in infinity right so they're always like keep your eyes closed so he comes out as like this mentally shattered person in a blip of time it has a similar feeling to to that oh definitely i've never read that one it's it's just felt like because of the visual imagery he just got thrust into a ken russell movie all of a sudden (laughs) (laughs) a couple of ken russell movies because the end of the devils has the the breaking wheels going down the road Uh, speaking of movies that i could watch like an infinite number of times (laughs) man that's i will not derail us into the devils though because it's only tangentially related here (laughs) i can't even shoehorn that in um oliver reed would have been a great max 
throw that. Oh, <laughs> oh no! Don't do it. Stop tangents. Okay. So, <laughs> meanwhile, a mysterious disease has started killing the animals at the compound, and when Seth finally caves into modern medicine, right? Because she's thinking, like, what are all the folkways we can draw on? She's not so obsessed with the folkways that she does not have a stash of antibiotics. Um, she attempts to use them, but when she goes into the storeroom, she finds out that Liko has actually destroyed the medicine. So he has knocked the bottles off a shelf, trampled them under his tiny cute hooves, and <laughs> the animals are doomed. So the members of the compound- And he's so happy when she oh, sees he's him. He's, like, he's got his tongue wagging out and looks at her like, hey, <laughs> look at what I did. That's our Liko. <laughs> Goats are dicks, but that's why they're so funny, man. I don't know. <laughs> is he really possessed or is he just being a goat? I don't know. <laughs> I come from a city. So the members, <laughs> the members of the compound accompanied by Max hold this strange funeral for Grigor that in, includes um, like uh, excavating his torso, like taking his organs out, burning the organs and smearing the ashes on his funeral shroud um, and interring his body in this ancient subterranean crypt. So it's like this very pagan, um, not satanic, but like pagan moment. And, and Max is not really here for it. Uh, so on their way back from the ceremony, they find Roland um, and he is surrounded by crows, nude and nearly frozen to death. His eyes have turned completely black and it's clear that there's something really wrong with him. But back at the compound, he sort of exhibits this like Wolverine ability to heal himself. <laughs> And he starts telling Seth about his visions in an eerie monotone voice. Everything's fine, guys. We're good. <laughs> <laughs> We've now taken a hard turn into the supernatural. Because as it turns out, those four animal-masked men that he saw are actually servants of the Lord. And the bear, wolf, pig, and fox represent the Lord's virtues, which is this kind of parody of the four Gospels of the New Testament and how each of the, um, the, the authors of the Gospel is an animal. This is sort of like their weird mirror dark version of that. And Seth, after hearing all this, realizes that it's Roland and it's not Max who has the purpose to fill. And that's really bad news for Max because <laughs> <laughs> we also find that Roland is now able to vocalize in this hideous otherworldly voice that like combines two different voices. Like one of them is specifically a way the Lord taught him to sing. So realizes that this is the sound that is going to bring about the apocalypse, right? Like this sound is something they have to record. So Max gets brought to the recording. But studio. it should be pointed out, Seth it isn't necessarily expecting apocalypse. She doesn't know what's going to happen. She's True. sort of looking for the Lord to fulfill some prophecy on earth. And really, it feels like from Roland, this is where she first gets the prophecy is destruction. The prophecy is the antinatalism that John talks about. Uh, you know what? You're absolutely right, because I think it, to the point that the the purpose of the cult is to serve the Lord and his will, whatever that looks like, this is and they've been playing around with weapons for self-defense and things of that nature. But like how much of that is really like to do terrorist actions? We don't really get that idea. Maybe it's just self-defense in that vague, yeah, they mentioned paranoid that, way. They mentioned that it's specifically to protect themselves from Russia and Putin at one point. Right. In the book, that that's why they're so militarized. 
surprised that there'll right. be a Bastion holdout gets mentioned. Right. But it's a political, I guess, yeah. mini apocalypse, right? Yes. Like yeah, it's, absolutely, it, absolutely. It, it, it's an, but that would be an apocalypse on a personal scale as <laughs> we have seen in the past, you know, yeah. couple of years. Uh, so um, Max lays down his guitar tracks. He is struck with horrifying visions while he's doing it. And then spooky Tara sneaks up behind him and kills him with an overdose of heroin after his recording is complete. So Roland with his new supernatural gift gets brought in and he records the vocals and drums in order to disseminate the miasma, as he calls it, <laughs> that he has been taught by the Lord and disseminate this to the rest of the world. And you get another like house on the borderland moment where Roland dies when he's done and his spirit is lifted from his body and condemned to wander the cosmic plane for eternity. But for him, it's it almost feels like it's a freeing moment in this new weird like um, dark woke state that he's in. <laughs> it's, it's, it's kind of interesting. So Taris then goes on to sacrifice Liko, RIP Liko, my good, good friend, <laughs> and unleash sickness and misfortune into the world. So there's there's this scene where he's in the crypt and he sacrifices Liko and he uses some of um, Max's blood uh, as like, I guess, the um, catalyst for this spell. And together it unleashes this vortex that like sucks him up into the vortex. And, Seth and it's goes like the a plague vortex. It's like this black darkness that like causes them to like organically fall apart and get sucked up. It's a very striking visual. Sorry yeah, it's it, it's very well done. It's it's actually a great little scene. And again, like we're now getting this is not one of those books where you're like, huh, I wonder if the real ghost was divorce all along. Yeah. Like, this is definitely, <laughs> definitely a book where there's like a very real magician who's doing very real magic. Yeah, it's no a Val very Luton. real guy. Yeah. It's yeah. Not, it's not, <laughs> is the cat, is the cat person really a cat person? No, there it is. It is definitely an evil god here to spread plague. Right. So Seth then goes into the forest where she meets a strange man who's attired as a knight, kind of like a knight-like um, gear, and reveals to him the work she's been doing. It turns out he is a descendant of the Lord, and he plays some mysterious role in what's going to be happening. So he says, you know, I'll go back to the castle and let them know your message so what is that who knows what i love about this character is he seems wildly unprepared in comparison to seth he seems like some rich guy who's like uh i didn't think this was gonna happen really i got my <laughs> armor on as hard riding this horse and armor i guess i'll go lead the apocalypse now he seems like i love this character as he just seems like a guy who's sort of he's he's as skeptical as max you sort of feel like he sort of feels like no 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 i'm metal i'm definitely metal i believe in the <laughs> devil and all that for sure you know yeah it's it's an interesting moment because it's also one of those things that like i think one of the things that cosmic horror does well when cosmic horror executes on this promise well is that it um it, it will have unresolved threads. It will have things that just are pointed out or like dropped in there because they're like creepy. Like, you know, when John was describing the Legati story earlier, like you don't know, he's not going to go in and be like, and the theater was this way because there was a nuclear bomb and somebody died there. <laughs> and Right. Like you're not going to get that um, yeah. comfortable 
resolution. And I, I love the fact that this book is willing to let you sit, make you sit in your discomfort in a lot of different ways. So, um, you know, what, what winds up happening, obviously, is the, the album is released. Uh, Extinction Songs is unleashed on the world. And um, as people are listening to it, all these terrible things are happening, right? Like there's school shootings and like murders that get associated with it. So the media goes wild and like promotes it more. And in that sort of like Streisand effect way, yeah. like more and more people are now buying this and listening to this cursed record. Reminded me a little bit of the Lords of Salem the yeah. Rob Zombie movie. Or, um, uh, have you seen Pontypool? No, but I know the one you're talking about with the radio yeah. broadcast mm -hmm. where it's the same kind of, yeah. yeah. It's um, like, a, it's a poison thought story. Yeah. Yeah. I think the most fictional thing that happens in this book is that the vinyl copies are produced and shipped so quickly. <laughs> like that tale, as anyone knows, is like, that shit ain't gonna happen. So, <laughs> however, uh, the Lord intervenes in mysterious ways. He got on the phone. Uh, you're shipping when? God damn it. <laughs> and so, you know, the film, the the film, it, it feels cinematic. The book concludes with Seth and Roman um, going down in a blaze of glory while conducting this terrorist action in Kiev. And that's the end. So we don't know what happens after this. Like, is the plague unleashed? Does the word go further? Does the Lord's plan of apocalypse come about? We certainly have a personal apocalypse for the, you know, uh, six people who are at the core of the story. And I think that, you know, that's the the unresolved cosmic horror of it all. That's what I love about it. I love that you said unresolved, you know, uh, consequences that happen in these books. One story I love, and it's not often associated with cosmic horror gets written by Arthur C. Clarke, who's, you know, a science fiction guy, but it's the story of the nine billion names of God, where it's said in a monastery in Tibet, where the whole idea was like, if they come up with every possible permutation of God's name, if they like succeed in their task, like he'll end the universe basically. And they end up introducing a computer into it. And of course the computer manages to do this within days as opposed to, you know, millennia. And uh, it just ends with them where the monks are looking at overhead and it says they noticed that overhead without any fuss, the stars were going out. And oh, I just, wow. this is one of the creepiest things. Sorry to spoil that story for everybody, but, um, but that's exactly the kind of thing where it's like something really ominous is happening. We can't really say what it is. We can't really say there's any certain, you know, uh, consequence that's happening here, but it is, fucking creepy well, and this book definitely kind of achieves that to the point that they almost kind of wonder like did they bring about the end of the world are they just running off with guns and getting shot down in public like for nothing you know they're just like yeah. well, we're gonna go and with to this. be clear they commit a mass shooting at the end she and yeah. and, yeah. and roman go they run their car through a crowd a crowded restaurant get out and do a mass shooting so and it's not <laughs> And it's presented like everything else in this book, like this is something that here's what our heroes are up to now, you know, kind of thing. It's not, um, again, when you talk about the purity tests, if if you want a book in which your heroes commit a mass shooting at the end, this is the <laughs> what this here's your option for that, yeah. you know, um, and not in a like they have to do it to save the universe. Like, here's part of the plan. 
you know, for ending the world kind of thing. Uh, and it's very unshy about it. Another thing I found interesting about this book's style is it's sort of the inverse of an absent artist film. This is something John and I have talked about in the horror genre before, where you have an artist who's disappeared and has created an artwork that's so powerful, it's going to drive people insane and cause the end of the world. Ninth Gate in the Mouth of Madness, House with Laughing Windows, right? This is the absent artist film from the perspective of the absent artist, right? Yeah. It's, you know, this is the, this is, what if you went through his creative process for creating the artwork that's so insane it destroys the world, rather than being, you know, an insurance claims adjuster who's heard about, like, this artist who disappears and, you know, if we're going to file this claim, I got to go into the mouth of madness kind of thing. You know, it's it's flipped. It's an inverse of that, which is something I really like about it. I'm glad you brought that up because I think the ultimate tragedy for these two characters, Max and Roland, is that Max is really seeking to make that album that could potentially destroy the world, you know, that would really crack the center of the earth open and just be the most important thing ever conceived by an artist. And uh, at the end, he's just a tool, right? They just like bring him in, have him record the track and then fucking kill him. You know, like he's just completely dismissed to the point that it's like, we know you can do what you need to do. So, so just do it, man. Then we don't have to deal with you anymore. You're obnoxious and you're a loser <laughs> that, you know, the idea of like, he's just completely perfunctory. There's nothing, there's no like creative energy in what he ends up doing. And with Roland, again, you know, this idea that he is actually somebody who could tap into that, that sweet, sweet nectar of, you know, a musician who like, you know, creates something really important and something that's really taps into something uh, and taken over by this, you know, other being that's going to use him for his own ends. Like he kind of, as a creative person and as an individual artist gets, destroyed you know and kind of replaced by something else um so i think that that's kind of an interesting way to look at especially since we've kind of followed these guys the entire time and their ultimate immersion into this commune and this uh, weird religion that they're kind of part of is that they're just both going to have to be destroyed artistically you know and saying it's the reversed absent artist is great because those absent artists have like have left their mark on on the world you know whatever they've left is either the the cancer that's going to destroy civilization or it's some, or, or, or to save it, whatever, you know, the story might be. And here it is like, okay, guys, create that thing, get here to create the thing, even though you are just shells of men at this point, you know, like one of you is too raw to like have anything to input. And the other one is past his prime, you know, it can't, can't do it anymore. And that to me is like kind of the tragedy of the story, which I really, really enjoy. Yeah. They're the first people destroyed by the artwork which is interesting, you know, which is again in the, in the absent artwork, uh, absent artist movies, the artist has, has been annihilated in some way. And to see what that would actually look like, you know, Sutter Kane is just a guy, you know, and then, well, what happens to him? And it's like, oh, he's, he's annihilated first by this thing. He's unleashed. That's again, a cosmic car way bigger than him and beyond his control. Another thing. It's like like the guy from Star Trek five is like, bring me a spaceship so I can, take over the world why does god need a spaceship um that is one thing though about this conception of god and that i always think in the old god cosmic horror kind of stuff is i like that the gods are actually really 
small and pathetic. What the Lord is actually after is he doesn't want to be lonely anymore. He doesn't want the burden of eternity. He doesn't want the burden of existence. And he wants to feel the warmth of souls coming to him. This is what's driving annihilation in the in in the the Lord's will is that he feels lonely as a giant sky god to which we're only specks. And this is like a really pathetic, sad version of God, you know, God is like the big lonely guy who just wants to feel human touch kind of thing. And the only way he can do it is by like sucking up enough specks of dust of human souls to do it and enough suffering to sort of feel something at all, you know, but I mean, it's almost like God as the heroin addict, you know, kind of thing. The guy who just wants to feel something, but is fucked up by becoming too numb to it. And another thing I just in terms of context of talking about metal, um, Joe Bob Briggs pointed this out on one episode he did. I can't remember what, but in the 80s and early 90s, you had Tipper Gore and the Parents Music Research Group, right? Uh, Parents Music Research Council, uh, who wanted to ban these albums. There were accusations that like, um, uh, like that the Judas Priest song, um, uh, Better By You, Better Than Me, had caused kids to commit suicide, or that Ozzy Osbourne had, had subliminal messages that were causing people to commit suicide, that these, that these, uh, you had the sort of moral panic people, these are albums designed to unleash demons, and cause uh, mayhem that, you know, it's, and it's almost funny, the bands they choose in retrospect, like Ozzy and ACDC are going to like unleash hell on earth. These like pretty, pretty like lovely brain dead party bands that like only like the devil in the sense of like the devil's awesome on a t-shirt. That's their relationship to the devil. You know what I mean? Um, And so it was, and if you were a right thinking person in the nineties, you were like, oh my God, no, you know, Judas Priest is not causing suicide. You know, this is not what's happening. These are mentally uh, unhealthy, unhappy people that, you know, getting rid of these records isn't going to help people who saw souls are in agony, who are unhappy in this way, who aren't receiving the help they need, who are feeling lonely and lost. If anything, connecting to the music is going to help them, you know? So if you were a right-thinking person, you were like, oh, this fucking nonsense, these these fucking uh, David, what's it, David Warnocki, is that the guy's name? The like, let me walk you through satanic albums guy, you know? Oh, yeah. Um, like, these people are all fucking idiots, right? What these novels, these satanic Uh, these devil music movies and novels have in common is what if those guys were right? What if those guys were right and these albums do actually unleash hell? What if all these overt morons were actually right? And I think that that's a funny thing about metal as a genre is the extent to which you're supposed to take it seriously. You know, I think that it's a weird line to thread, you know, and I think that that's why some bands like the longer they go and the more serious they get, you have somebody like Sepultura who just becomes a political band and sort of gets very refined political thoughts to a point where it becomes hard to categorize them as metal anymore because they've dropped so much of like the provocative death type imagery, right? Um, And have just become like, you know, this is about the violence of labor and the subjugation of man in in a concrete level, you know, that to what extent you're actually supposed to believe in the devil when you read a metal book or listen to a metal album, I think is, I think is interesting. I think it's an interesting unresolvable question. I think the scene so fragmented, it's not resolved within itself. 
Yeah. And I don't, I think that ambiguity is the point. And I think if you like that, you are in the right place. If you don't like the ambiguity of someone like King Diamond who sits there and says, no, I am, I am a Satanist. I am, I'm a member of a satanic church. And (laughs) also I do ridiculous like concept albums that are like out of a hammer movie (laughs) where I do the grandma voice. Like those two things can exist together and both be true. You know, in, in the conversations I've had with people who are in like the more extreme end of um, the metal spectrum, like the degree to which we can sit down and have like a really good laugh, but also like take stuff take the things that are worth taking seriously, i.e. somebody doing this art and this interesting art and being committed to it and doing it for like no money and no distribution and all this. Like you can have both of these things. And I think the people who accept that do very well and lead healthy, well-balanced lives. And I think the people who um, cannot understand or, or cannot cannot live in a world with unresolved and messy conflicting emotions are people who are going to have a hard time with this from both sides right both from the censorious side of like wasp said fuck like an animal and therefore it should be banned and you know yeah um, take you at gunpoint and eat you alive you know like right 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 The, the people where it's like he's talking about sexual violence and it's like yes and is also Blackie Lawless. So, yeah. <laughs> you know. Um, so he's going to have the firework dick. You know what I mean? So Right. And, you know, there are people who, for whatever reason, have, um, uh, through some combination of mental juices in their brains, will take it seriously. There is this small portion of people, but like... To what degree do we need to design our lives around the lowest common denominator? <laughs> and like, to, to what degree do we need to protect ourselves from things that may happen but never have? Yeah, yeah. Is, is it Anna Biller recently on Twitter who was like bringing like bringing up all those like satanic panic stuff? Like it was real. I did research. Oh, oh, she's she's a she's oh, a no, <laughs> not somebody you should. <laughs> follow on twitter if you want to like those movies hey hot Uh take i i got rid of twitter um i got rid of facebook smart i've never been happier because again if you're if you're going to engage with art like this specifically i find that every moment i spend on social media makes me angrier dumber and Uh like less able to engage with things on the level that i want to engage with them on and also it's made me nicer to other people because i'm not like i'm <laughs> the, not the real problem is i've you i've i've time. made legitimate friends on there who i only yeah. know on there and that's always the problem um i was just going to say as far about the the line of seriousness you talking about it too there's almost the 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 boonwellian thing of um Evil is real and terrifying. This is not what Boonwell would think, but it's sort of in a, in, in a similar thing. It's both real and terrifying. Evil is also hilarious. You know, there's there's Definitely. a sort of, of a metal thing of like, this is both real and horrifying. This shit is also extremely funny. And those sort of sentiments sort of pool around. They don't come together. It's like oil and water being sloshed around in a metal a lot of time where it's like, you know, this we're really dark black metal our band is also called corpse masturbator which is both horrifying and funny you know what i mean (laughs) that sort of like 
you know, if you're a metal person, you read the track lists on a Cannibal Corpse album and you're like, oh my God, Meat Hook Sodomy, that is fucking hilarious. You know what I mean? There's that sort of reaction to some of this stuff at the same time that knowing like, well, that's actually horrifying. Do I need to hold your hand about this? You know, that kind of thing where it's, it threads that needle a lot of the time, uh, not even threads the needle. Like I said, it's oil and water swashing around in a very unresolvable way, like you're saying. Well, to that, and let me ask you, do you feel like this book goes too far in its kind of gruesomeness? Should they not have killed uh, Lyco off? <laughs> Should he have Those are two different answers. Those are two different <laughs> answers. <laughs> R.I.P. Lyco, Lyco for life. Like, I love that little guy. <laughs> but I understand. I understand that he was doomed from the middle, from, from the minute an animal, like, sets foot in this book. It's like, oh, no, he has a pet cat. Shit. <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> you know something bad's going to happen. Um, a, they got to do a website now. Now, does the goat survive? Yeah, <laughs> does, does the goat live? <laughs> <laughs> um, I, you know, I uh, my hot take is the art. There's no such thing as a work of art going too far unless you're committing a criminal act. If right you on. murder a human being and you film it, your crime is not filming a human being being murdered. Your crime is murdering a human being. <laughs> so like to me, as long as you are not and, and look, I'm also very aware I live in America. I know we have some laws on the book around speech. I certainly know that in, in other countries, there are laws around speech. There are moral and ethical things we could dig into there that we're just not going to because I yeah. don't want to. But like, to the extent that um, a, a piece of artwork can go too far, I don't think it can. I think I can just choose as a mature, fully formed human adult to either engage or not engage with that thing. Yeah, you're not it, you're not obligated as an audience to go as far as an artwork goes. You're not you are Correct. allowed to stop. But I don't think that means the artwork went too far. I'm 100% on your side with this, but I'm an absolutely nuts free street speech extremist. You don't even yeah. want to know <laughs> how how far down that road I am. Oh, well, I remember the time we showed up to the same screening. We did not know each other was going to be <laughs> at this particular screening. And I was like, oh, hi. Yeah. Yeah. I love so, that movie. I yes. love that movie. Yes. Um, What's the movie? <laughs> Salon Kitty. Yes. Um, okay. Sorry. We, I don't, <laughs> are you fine with nice. admitting that you were at a uh, Salon Kitty screening? Um, I wanted to see a print of it. Uh, but yeah. you were the one who told me that it was like an edited version. I hadn't seen it before. And I went and looked up. There were like pieces cut out of the version of the version we saw there at the quad. I was very disappointed that there yeah. was not more inspection of the of the bodies for usability. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I've I've seen Salon Kitty uh greater than zero number of times <laughs> I, I i may be capable of doing a close read of that film but uh yeah if you want to come back on and talk salon kitty sometime i'm oh. absolutely up for that if you want to lose everybody as your subscriber if anybody's sticking around through this like let's I, just go ham i feel like is it even worth doing a show if you're not risking losing subscribers i genuinely feel that um, that's my theory uh John, what's what's next? I'm taking us too far afield. Oh, the darkness of the book. John, what did you think? You're the most outsidery of us on this. What did, what did you feel about going into the to the the depths of, you know, antenatal 
apocalyptic mass shooting metal fiction well i guess that's just kind of like a problem of like reading too many of those classics you know and 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 kind of being very deep into like that background is that you know you read a new book and you're like yeah whatever i've I've read better you know like it's just immediately kind of comparing kind of comparing it unfavorably to like the classics and i feel like Peak's biggest, the biggest criticism I would have of him is some of his descriptions are more like, you get the idea, right? Like where uh, Roland goes into the, into the uh, uh, abyss, into the cosmos, into his crazy visions. And uh, it describes like uh, flesh falling off of a skull, you know, in lap, in time-lapse photography, right? And you're like, it feels like Peak was like, well, you guys know what I'm talking about, right? Like you've seen movies where like something crazy like that happens as opposed to like, describe it to me in like a new way that's interesting. <laughs> and so I feel like he doesn't go as extreme because only because so much has come before him and he's clearly so influenced by so many people that it almost becomes like, uh, and then crazy shit happens, guys. You know, you know what it is. You know what I'm talking <laughs> about here. <laughs> Um, another limitation I would say for him is that he describes every female character in this as beautiful, stunningly and then, beautiful. And it moves oh, on. Stunningly like, beautiful. Literally, <laughs> he says stunningly beautiful. I wrote it down. I think it's eight times he says yeah. stunningly beautiful. <laughs> yeah, that's. I mean, honestly, as a female reader, I it didn't stand out to me too much because what he didn't do is describe specific parts of their body, <laughs> which, <laughs> which I've been. Not. You know, I, we read not. a lot of like seventies and eighties books, and it's like I get it i get that their breasts are different sizes these two different women <laughs> i understand or one gorgeous amazon woman with breasts of different sizes <laughs> john did you like the constant do you hey would you guys i feel like this must be on purpose there's constant allusions to things not just references to bands although he's not excessive with that i like that it's not every paragraph like in generation loss here's a new reference um, he'll use phrases within the writing itself, like all the colors of the dark, the flash of the blade, and most pointedly into the mouth of madness that are illusions. We agree these are intentional illusions, right? When when he's referencing that sort of stuff. Oh, yeah. 100%. I think 100%. so. Oh, no, I was just going to say that's actually something that um, another writer that this somewhat reminded me of is, um, po- are you all familiar with Poppy Bright? and lost souls and yeah okay wormwood yeah terrific yeah so when they're writing those books you know they're very like enmeshed in that goth scene of the 90s (laughs) and they include a lot of references to you know there's a character i think called dario after dario argento in one of their books like it it to me reminded me of that which is a little bit of a wink i think there's a lot of winks in this book to people so while it is not a light book it is definitely like dark and foreboding i think the way peak modulates that is by giving you those little like here's a treat for you <laughs> yeah. you get it like not in like a family guy writer way but like i feel like it's almost like a friendly like we're we know each other right we're on the same team i i and for me because i am on the same team i liked that i'm like oh, yeah that's cool yeah it's a weirdly fun book i would describe it as which is strange for how and yeah. i agree with you john i think part of that fun too is connecting it to the legacy of cosmic horror and sort of uh, a knowingness about the origins of it and and 
you know, that traditions of the genre. I don't think it's trying to reinvent it. I think it's just trying to be a really excellent piece of it, which I think it accomplishes. I agree with you that sometimes his writing is a little clunky, but I appreciate somebody who's clearly not an overly trained writer nowadays. I feel like in modern fiction in the past 20 years, there's uh, just a disease that's infected writing where writers are very samey. They've People are getting trained at in academic institutions and they all write the same and have the same voice and approach things the same way. So when you have somebody who comes in and is just doing it himself, I I like that more. You know, I don't yeah. mind that he says stunningly beautiful over and over again. It shows that he didn't have that editor sitting over his, that teacher, that proctor sitting over his shoulder saying, don't repeat adjectives. You know, you don't use that. You use the word beautiful already. This chapter, find another word. I like that. He doesn't have that, that sort of, you know, academic sitting on his shoulder with a ruler ready to chide him. No, I agree with that. And I didn't mean to come down too hard on him. I was just thinking like, oh, this is a type of book, you know, where sure like metal music is going to like bring about the end of the world. But looking back, I, there aren't too many good examples of that. When I think about movies, horror movies using metal, you know, you got like trick or treat and black roses and rock and roll nightmare and rocktober blood. Uh, and then kind of more recent ones like the devil's candy and death to metal. Those don't aren't really cosmic horror. You know, those really aren't applying those like kind of classic subgenre. um, um, what tools you know towards like you know the approach to black metal so he's definitely doing something original and really interesting with this book that i definitely appreciate and i do think it's well written for the most part well shall we move into to our final thoughts on the books before we do our dessert yeah one 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 last thing i wanted to bring up was just what? What, because John? i do not have i do not have like the full context of this but it seemed interesting the fact that it's set in ukraine you know, when you like hear the Norwegian guys talking about like they they put up a new McDonald's. So we went, we shot out the windows, you know, we're against Western civilization encroaching into like uh, and, and tear, tearing down our, our, our traditions, and our morals and things like that. This seems to have like kind of an added layer of being in Ukraine. And as you mentioned, anti-Putin, anti-Russia and specifically mentioning like these, you know, these people who we want to like uh, cleanse are people who like teach Russian to our children in schools and things like that, that nationalism, you know, is like a really important thing there, like kind of like striving to like maintain that Ukrainian identity and uh, being worried, not just about like, you know, Western civilization and, uh, you know, uh, Christian uh, doctrine kind of taking over for like mythology and their traditions, but like specifically feeling like you know it being under the shadow of this other giant country seemed to be like something extra i don't know if you guys read into that or had any kind of insight into that as well well i think it's intentional you know i mean i think mm. um if if you have the quite frankly cosplay version that the you know second wave guys in norway were doing where they're like oh no we have too much modern churches and yeah. like western brands you know it's like right. a cosplay idea of imperialism you have the very literal threat of imperialism when you're <laughs> in ukraine so it's almost saying what if the stakes were that high you know again it's it's not just like teenage and young guys in their young 20s like being pissed and not having a direction for it these people have a very real direction for it but the way that manifests is in a way that's um terrible violent and dangerous and ultimately murderous so uh, i think that's super intentional and again the 
setting of, of it in Eastern Europe where you do have more of this like nationalist uh, black metal. It, it's supposed to evoke that danger because those people are, you know, radical people, radicalized, are dangerous. Yeah. Uh, no two ways about it. Yeah, in a, in a well-armed, militarized society that's been yeah. sort of in the throes of, if not full civil war, sort of military action for 30 years sort of existing on that knife edge where the combat boots are there for a reason they're not for show kind of thing i agree with you 100 percent uh where where that's i think adds the context although when i feel like i read the descriptions of it, it he does sound like he's describing like idyllic scandinavian landscapes more than ukraine which is a little more sort of flat and treeless and unpleasant <laughs> than idyllic and fairy foresty. You know what I mean? That, that like you're, you're going to find a beautiful ancient forest shrouded castle in Scandinavia. You're not going to find one in the Ukraine really <laughs> is sort of my, my reaction of it as I think that, but I think that also what you're saying, the, the cloud of, of the, of the uh, Scandinavian black metal is so over metal and black metal and what they're doing here that that it's it's kind of hard to get out of their imagery and that that sense of that sort of tactile sense of what this genre is that it gets transposed to the ukraine yeah um the interesting thing is if you look at like the cover of 75 percent of black metal albums that have ever been released it's the like snow shrouded forest or the the <laughs> fog covered um landscape and, yeah. and, and like an un, an illegible wispy kind of logo um, however, if you look at the album covers of Drutk, uh, who was the band we were talking about at uh, in yeah. the appetizer, um, they are folk paintings of Ukraine. So the oh, interesting, interesting thing is, uh, yeah. in in Ukraine, like those bands do have a cultural identity. It wasn't dug into here because it wasn't, you know, germane to the plot. But it is something that's extant. That's kind of interesting. interesting. To your point. Interesting. This, that sums it up really interestingly. I think it's weird that he has his Max, you know, his main character, who is, you know, if there's going to be a template, it's obviously uh, the Burzum guy, whose name I can never remember. Uh, Bar Varg Vickerness. Yeah. Varg, Varg, thank you. John, uh, have you listened? Have you listened to Varg's ambient techno albums, John? Did you put any of those on before you did this? I haven't. His like middle school Casio keyboard style. Dungeon synth, baby. Dungeon synth. <laughs> Stuff has you a do name. in prison. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, obviously the template is uh, is the, he's the template for the Max character, but Max himself is American, you know, right coming over yeah. from the states, and you know, I don't know what the metal scene is like here in the states but i feel like they haven't they certainly haven't been venerated the way you know people the, the european black metal scene has over here am i right in thinking that kate or you are correct actually it's interesting because <laughs> i was like there's no way there would be this like highly influential american band because of the whole like ethos of black metal the interesting thing about american black metal because there are a ton of really good bands and actually like not on the North American continent, some of the best black metal coming out right now comes from Quebec, um, has like an insane huh. uh, black metal scene. But um, in America, one of the forms that's most popular is what's called, uh, and again, somebody's going to write in if they know this shit. <laughs> um, there's this idea of Cascadian black metal that's from bands in the Pacific Northwest that's basically all about nature. And like the beauty of huh. nature. So if you get into a band like Agaloc, for example, was like an incredible practitioner of this stuff. It's like 
it takes all of the political and like all of the satanic stuff out. And it's literally just, it's like only in America could you have black metal where it's just talking about the weather. Like it's, (laughs) (laughs) it's like, we're going to pass this purity test. Now I'm not, I'm, you know, I'm being facetious, but like it is um, very beautiful stuff. But if you get deep into the scene and you talk to people, they're like, you know, they're just copying like XYZ band from Europe. (laughs) So it's like somehow it has to come from Europe for it to be like, you know, uh, important. Like there's definitely that vibe. So you are correct in picking up on that. Um, the only other observation I had about the use of metal in this book, and this is sort of a little more tangential, is they keep talking about um, Painkiller, the Judas Priest song yes. album in it. And it's interesting, that's a 1990 album. And if you've heard the song Painkiller, it's very industrial sounding. It sounds more like ministry or lard or something like that, right? Um, and so it's fascinating to have that brought up because it's specifically Max who's like, this is fucking great. I love this. Because that's it's not that metal died in 1990, but like alternative music, like Nirvana sort of killed off metal as a mainstream force. And so identifying metals like final moments, one of its last gasp before it sort of in the nineties, it sort of turns into industrial. You do sort of get like nine inch nails and KMFDM and that sort of thing that are not that metal fans would riot. I think if you called them metal, but clearly that's where metals pointed in that moment in some way to have Max, who's has the burden of these first few albums on his head that he can't get away from be into painkiller and sort of pinpointing that moment where metal becomes occult stuff where it stops being MTV stuff and starts being occult stuff. It really does sort of like, if you had to pick a song to embody that it would be painkiller. You know what I mean? I love that. I think I didn't I didn't pick up on that, but I think you're you're bang on because it's not breaking the law. Right. It's not you know, it's not one of these other priest songs. It's not Black Sabbath. Right. Because it's it's again like the idea of and I I don't think we really dug into this, but like backward looking versus forward looking. Yeah. Yeah. Like, you know, black metal is a very backward looking kind of uh you know genre there are people who are doing like space inflected black metal i don't know i mean like i'm not I, it's cool but like i'm not sure it works the same way as like freaking bathory right yeah. like, where it's sort of like death. genres get frozen in their past right like you can't really make a new blues record you're just doing an impression of what blues was you same thing you can't really make a new metal album almost it's sort of doing an impression of what became before and it's sort of like what is the window closing for the past and it's sometime around 1990 it's sometime in that painkiller era where everything is sort of what you're saying backward looking maybe not an impression of that but it's sort of archaeological in nature it's digging up this past and trying to breathe life into it trying to commune with it trying to connect with the old gods right you're trying to connect with 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 um with sabbath and judas priest and and those type of bands with the new metal ones that you're trying to connect with venom in some way when you're when you're mayhem that's sort of what you're trying to do you know definitely and in a way that informs you know the frustrations of max having this legacy that he has to you know live up to in until the light takes us there's that moment where uh fenris is uh being interviewed and they're talking about like 
ah, you know, it's not as good as the old stuff, huh? Basically in a really kind of impolite way. <laughs> and he's like, no, no, this is, this is the shit. Like, this is the new stuff. Like, this is the stuff that's going to blow people's minds and, you know, rock their tits off. Like, this is the stuff that's really gonna, you know, people are going to remember me for. And there's just such like a, uh, just like a sad frustration in his, his voice it's where it's like, I, I want to believe you, man. I want to believe that, you know, you are, progressive and thinking forward with your music but i think you're right chris i think that there's something it's about the it loneliness like... of the old god floating in space who's completely isolated from the world because he ascended so high i think that max and as a rock god and the the lord uh dervalin have we said his name what is i can't remember what is actually he has like a name but they're sort of in the same position in some ways i think that that's i think that these are on peak's mind it's certainly in the back of his mind in some way it's lord Drevelin. Yeah. Lord Drevelin. It's Slade Craven. Is it Slade Craven? <laughs> um I I will skip final thoughts except to say I really like this book. I love that you recommended it. Uh, Kate, it's it's was a lot of fun for me. Um and I think it's really interesting. And like I said, I I like art that uh, it's not the only thing in my diet. I can't eat ice cream for breakfast every day, but I do like indefensible stuff sometime in, in a way that um, uh, that just like things that that, like you say, don't exist to pass a purity test, you know, and to to sort of give one that see one that's interesting like this and surprising. And I didn't know where it was going and goes to a place where it's like, okay, I see where it's going. And then it goes one step further. And I'm like, bravo, you definitely took this further than I thought you were going to in sort of each plot thread went a little further. I'm, I'm really happy to have read it. Awesome. Well, I'm glad I could come to your house with a book that you actually wound <laughs> up liking. That makes me happy. And especially when it's like something that's a little like under the radar. Um, I'm always excited to kind of like put the, just get people thinking about these things. It's really, it's a joy. And uh, same, same here. I'll just reiterate that it's exciting to like tap into something that I've never really explored before, like black metal through a book. You know, that's not something that usually happens where it's Yay. like, I really got to do my research on this one if I want to keep up with these guys who know all about it and are deeply seated in its history. So thanks for that opportunity as well. I'll go ahead Yay. and start off the dessert pairings, if that's OK, just to get mine out of the way, because I'm really curious about your guys. Um, I wanted to, since I got Cosmic Horror out of the way and the aperitif, I wanted to do a, a musical horror book, you know, rock music horror book. And I thought about, like, what, what would pair well with it? There's the scream by uh, Skip Inspector, the splatter punk guys, which doesn't really doesn't really pair with this very well. Um, the Kill Riff by uh, David Scow, who's a well known horror guy, but it's not really a horror book. It's more like a a Death Wish type, you know, vengeance book. Uh, and then there's the Armageddon Rag by George R. R. Martin, which I read years ago and don't remember anything about it. Oh, we did um, that on the podcast. I know. You I, I, I remember it's it. an amazing episode. I've never <laughs> seen Game of Thrones or read any of it, but I viscerally hate George R. R. Martin based on your description oh. of that book. Okay, okay. Just a quick, a quick aside on Armageddon Rag. I actually have read all of the Game of Thrones books, and I think they're fabulous for what yeah. they are, which is why I read this, because it's about a band called Nazgul, and they're like <sighs> the best part of the freaking Lord of the Rings. Like if the Lord of the Rings yeah. was just like all the Nazgul, like cleaning their houses, I would be happy about it. <laughs> they're my favorite thing. But um, but yeah, it's a- Bowling night for the Nazgul. You'd, I think you describe <laughs> yeah. it as a, as an old white guy describing his record collection to you. Yes. And I'm like, oh my God. Ooh, that's very damning. <laughs> a white man uh, listing his record collection is not 
something I would want to read. <laughs> so what I ended up going with was Spider Kiss by Harlan Ellison, which was his only novel. And it's basically um, what if Jerry Lee Lewis was evil, more or less, or more evil. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say Jerry Lee Lewis <laughs> was pretty evil, John. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But like, like you know, uh, demonically so. It's not a horror book. It's more of like a, you know, kind of a crime novel. But at, at center is like, God, rock musicians must be the worst people to be around <laughs> ever through its story of uh, Stag Preston, who is the, the new rockabilly uh, idol who uh, used to be Luther Sellers, a bellhop from Louisville until he got brought up by uh, this uh, publicist who, you know, kind of finds him and makes him, makes him huge. It's a nice pairing actually with um, the great movie um, uh, Paycheck, the uh, payday, the, uh, um, uh, the John Moon movie, torn, the torn movie, the oh, torn okay. movie um, which is terrific. Um, but, but with this book definitely shares like a, I would not want to go on a road trip to Europe with either of these guys. <laughs> and I would not want to hang out with Stag Preston in any circumstance. They just makes him seem like the worst. And this is early Harlan Ellison. So, you know, it's definitely feels it. you know, he's still kind of finding his voice and there's a lot of very dated stuff in it, but it's still like a, a really fun, quick, joy, joyful read that I think would go well with this book. Okay. So when I think about dessert, I think about that sweet thing at the end of the meal that's going to tie it together and sort of like leave you happy. And if there is one thing we have not been so far, we have not been lighthearted at any point. And, you know, it's really true that people are, they may be drawn to heavy metal by the darkness and like the promise of all the subversiveness, but there's a ton of community in that scene. People are passionate as hell. And like, it's kind of silly, as we've talked about, you know, with with corpse masturbator and, and all these things. So I went in a little bit of a different direction and I picked another heavy metal piece of media, a movie also from 2018 called Heavy Trip. And it is a Finnish heavy metal comedy about a band um, who plays symphonic post-apocalyptic reindeer grinding Christ abusing extreme war pagan Fennoscandian uh, metal <laughs> um, called Impaled Rectum. And it's about how these guys are from this small town in Finland and they basically get invited to play on the bill of this very famous heavy metal festival because um, one of the things about the heavy metal community is there are a ton of festivals that are like multi-day affairs where you just go from like noon to two o'clock in the morning listening to bands. So this is very much the way people, it is a large way of the way people experience this music in person. And it's a road trip comedy. It's a little bit of like a romantic comedy. And the thing that I really like about it is the people who made this movie were inside baseball enough to make a black metal character who is actually funny. And he is the nerd, right? We talked about a lot of this music <laughs> is for nerds. And he's kind of... Um, Oh, God, I, I don't want to use like a rude term, but he's like a little aspie, you know, <laughs> like <Yeah>. a little, <laughs> a little intense in that particular way that we know what it is. And um, it just has a really good heart. So like after reading this book, that's all about like the grim darkness of metal. It's I think it's kind of fun to engage with something that's like, but we're all in on this joke together. Like we're all in on that oil and water mix that you know it's never yeah. going to come together in a tidy way and it's just such a cute fun movie like 
I, I, describing comedy and why it works is impossible, but I would <laughs> recommend it to to anybody to whom that sounds good. It's actually like even better than what you think. So. I'm so glad that's your pick because I found out about this movie from you on Bad Books. I have <laughs> never heard anybody else mention this film and I adore it. It's such a funny movie. Whoa. It's like got a huge heart. The The part where they can't even afford to get like a, a photo for their album cover. So they have to use like the speed camera. Like, yes, that's so cute. <laughs> it's just very clever and very fun. And like, you think like, it's like, oh, this is going to be like a spinal tap kind of rip off, but it's not at all. It's very much its own thing. And it's uh yeah, really, really fun movie. I wholeheartedly endorse that, uh, that pairing myself. Oh, that sounds great. Um, I have recommendation from both of you. Now I got to see it. I'd never heard of it before this moment. So um, I definitely have to, uh, to check it out. Uh, my dessert pairing is uh, it's Varg Vikernes, who we mentioned, who is a, uh, he's the guy who went to prison for murdering a bandmate, was associated with church burnings, a deeply unrepentantly racist guy. Uh, um, he, released a role-playing game my farag it's called mythic fantasy role-playing game which of course distinguishes it from every other role-playing game it's a mythic fantasy role-playing game <laughs> why what could be more original and unexpected than that um i think he worked on it a lot when he was in prison i think like his prison time was spent developing my farag uh i don't know how to explain this if you any better if you've played role-playing games this is a d20 game everything you do in this game requires a 20-sided die. There are a few different types of role-playing games, but there's one that is just obsessed with mechanics. And the rule books are just, I got a PDF of it off the internet, just pages and pages of charts and die rolls and turn sequences and things like that. You know, just if you want to play a game that has a really detailed chart on helmet condition degradation like this is the fucking game for you and it's wildly racist uh the the sort of evil mobs you kill aren't orcs but they are coopermen coppermen aka brown skin people and it, it is it is um horrifying but it really demonstrates the nerdiness of this uh stuff and i would say that there is uh, a thread running through metal as much as i enjoy it and i feel like i've been properly respectful enough to say this of like it does attract certain kind of like sad nerds who are dealing with the sense of impotency and smallness. So they engage in sort of like the apocalyptic annihilated power fantasies. That's definitely a part of it. You know, I don't mean any of that as an, as an insult necessarily. I just mean that that's definitely sometimes an appeal and you can see it very clearly in this. I do think there's actually something not to go too far afield, but like that Himmler-esque quality of Himmler being like a an occult dork who loved fanzines like this bespectacled chicken farmer nerd who like so much of the final solution he organizes he just loved fucking charts as much as he loved hating jews you know what i mean and you can see that sort of apocalyptic occult mindset in this game you can sort of see how all of these things that we might sometimes think of as good qualities like being nerdy and intelligent and detail uh, oriented and number focused can how they transmute into something grotesque and strange and deeply troubled in this rule book it's sort of like a grimoire almost of like a troubled mind. And I think that's what interests. I would not recommend you play this game at all. Uh, it's just like, 
you know, just like uh, rules for winter solstice festival turns, you know, just that kind of shit. It's, it's appears to be a horrible, horrible game. Um, it's not particularly well reviewed either, surprisingly. And he has a fan base that's definitely always out in force, just sort of cheering him on and everything he does, unfortunately. Um, and so uh, contextualizing it as that is also like, even, even those people aren't going to play this instead of GURPS. You know what I mean? So, um, but it's, it's really something if you want, if you want to go, you know, uh, artwork that goes too far, if you want to go too far, check out my farag this is this i think that's the end of that tributary of the varg vickerness tributary of black metal is this rule book i think that that's you're at the end of the line when you got there yeah it's like the most distilled version of the vision <laughs> that in the dungeon synth you know yeah. it's really you're just seeing him dry up before your very eyes like whatever might be creatively interesting is becoming desiccated <laughs> before your very eyes with this um yeah Thank you so much for doing this, Kate. Uh, it really, it really was a pleasure. I'm glad we finally got to to have you on and and talk about a book that I think was was perfect to talk to you about as well. Uh, I think that there's there's probably nothing else I would have rather had you on to discuss than this. Oh yay! Well, thank you so much. This was honestly this was a blast for me. I really enjoyed the perspective. Um, I loved hearing from both of you, like both like inside having one foot in things, having no feet in things like um it, it was really fun i i i took john at his word when he said he wanted research materials i was like i'm like don't feel like i'm assigning you work but here's 17 things <laughs> so this was a pleasure i had so I much fun and like way. it's great it, it made me enjoy a book that i already enjoyed even more so thank you thank you for uh inviting me and thank you for being a great conversational friends Thank you, Kate. You're welcome in our house anytime. And Yay. I know what the next Bad Books episode is, but why don't you tell everyone what it's <gasps> going to be? Because I'm excited for it. Oh, okay. So we're doing a heavy hitter. Um, we're doing Ghost Story by Peter Straub, um, which, which neither Jack nor I had read yet. So um, we we both finished it. We've like touched base and like... It's really funny. I think both of us have a very strong perspective on what we're going to talk about in this one. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's, it, 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 you know, we we try to cover a bunch of stuff, like both things that are like popular, things that are unknown. We try to change it up. Um, you know, I think the, the thing, the only book we ever almost bailed on doing was after we read Flash for Freedom was the only one where we were like, can we do a podcast on this? <laughs> but otherwise, there's like no holds barred on what we will talk about. Um, he's an academic i am not an academic but i'm a person with a lot of opinions uh, it's a fun time so if you enjoyed this then please join us over there as well it's, it's a great show i cannot recommend that show enough I, I think i think it's without hyperbole john and i aren't big podcast people but i think without hyperbole it's my favorite podcast so mm, well bad books for bad people loves you back thank you <laughs> have a great at night everybody thank you for listening 